0: as we eat our chili
1: you mean batter
0: oh you rub it on the clothes I see
1: thanks for putting that image in my mind Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's been thinking about you since the whole ghastly business. I'm Kelly Anakin. And
0: I'm Tom Schneider. We
1: are properly married. The
0: one thing you never understand about Tom is that he's not a snob.
1: Why are you talking about yourself in the third person? Because
0: that's how Tom rolls.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. We're getting a divorce. (laughs) Also, you're an an enormous snob. No, that's true. You're actually one of the biggest snobs I've ever met. (laughs) It's (laughs) probably your finest quality.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I do pride myself on it yes haughtily
1: oh yeah you should see his face right now cousins <laughs> uh welcome back we're very pleased to have all of you and mm-hmm. uh ready to embark on yet another jam-packed recap
0: <laughs> that's right
1: full of various things
0: yeah full of a lot of a lot of wacky decision making on the part of various characters and writers we could name but uh yeah,
1: mainly julian fellows right
0: he is, as far as we know, the sole writer.
1: Well, we'll get into that as things reveal themselves. But first, it is time to name our Cousin of the Week, Okay, Uh, assuming we have no new countries.
0: Uh, I'm assuming that we don't. Okay, (laughs) way to be on top of it. Sure.
1: This week's Cousin of the Week goes to Cousin Cheryl, who writes, Good morning, Kelly and Tom. Thank you for your awesome podcast. I think I might look forward to you guys more than the show itself. I wanted to ask a little about the babies in the show. I have a six-month-old son, so I'm fascinated with Mary's interactions with George. I can't imagine having the type of relationship she has with him, but I also couldn't imagine wearing something other than yoga pants when I'm at home. So immediately after Sybil died, the family talked about getting a nurse for the baby. I assumed this was someone in addition to the nanny, who would be an obvious addition to the household. They probably already had a nanny lined up. I figured the nurse was a wet nurse for the baby. They've never mentioned a nurse for George, though, and I hope that a nurse would have said something about Nanny West. So that means George never had a nurse. How did he eat? Mary certainly isn't breastfeeding. Mainly, how could she do it in those clothes? Also, it's not very polite to sit in the small library with your boob out. (laughs) I took some time out of my workday to look up Edwardian post-World War I breastfeeding. Here's what I learned. Most is from an NIH website. Wet nurses started to fall out of fashion in the 19th century. By 1900, they were pretty much gone. I was surprised to find out that baby bottles were a huge factor in having a wet nurse. In the 1800s, nearly a third of all artificially fed babies died because of the bacteria buildup in the bottle-slash-nipple or the milk spoiling. Mm -hmm. Eventually, rubber nipples and better bottles, along with more feeding options, made wet nurses obsolete. In the 1920s, babies could be fed some sort of cow's milk-based infant food stored in the icebox or in powdered form using bottles. People were understanding the importance of cleanliness and in infant deaths due to spoiled milk or dirty bottles started to decline. However, breastfeeding was still the main way of feeding babies in that time. I found an awesome blog with advice from a book called Every Woman's Encyclopedia that advised women to breastfeed and even told them to avoid alcohol. Formula itself wasn't invented until the end of the 20s. It came about because cow's milk didn't have the right balance of nutrients for human babies. One example, lots of babies were getting scurvy. Mm. Mothers using the cow's milk were advised to give the baby fruit juice along with the milk. While I couldn't find any information on breastfeeding and aristocracy, it seems pretty easy to believe that women like Mary wouldn't nurse their babies. The clothing isn't practical. She's going on overnight trips to London without a breast pump. I don't think anyone could ever see her getting up in the middle of the night to feed the baby. I'm not writing this as a formula versus breastfeeding debate over Mary as a good mother. We are so lucky now to have formula and bottles as a safe feeding option for babies today. Anyway, I could be reading too much into the show. Julian Fellows is an older man. How much would he even know about breastfeeding? It consumes my day, so I think about it all the time. <laughs> a show about Mary's clogged ducks would be much less interesting, but I would like to see how Lord Grantham would react to leaky boobs at dinner. <laughs> In an interesting side note, I also found some pretty cool Edwardian nursing chairs. I didn't know this was a thing. They are typical old-fashioned chairs with low seats, making it a bit more comfortable for the mom to hold her baby on her lap while nursing. If I were fit, and old-fashioned i would totally have this in my nursery too long didn't read mary didn't breastfeed her baby hooray for science check out these old chairs thanks for being so awesome <laughs> wet nurse cheryl uh, well thanks so much cheryl that's yes. really fascinating and we'll be sure to share links uh, to the websites that you mentioned if people are interested in exploring this further yeah um no that's all really fascinating and i had no idea how common infant death was right. up to that point because of unsanitary feeding conditions, which is horrifying.
0: Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, and it's also horrifying, um, you know, again, not to get into the debate, but one of the anti-formula debate arguments is that in a lot of, you know, the developing world and, you know, Africa and places like that, infant deaths have been on the rise as formula companies have started pushing their product because there isn't clean water to mix the formula with there. And so, um, you know, that's, it's still a problem in some yeah. cases.
1: Well, and I think, you know, that's not even part of the formula versus nursing debate. That's well, about like debate social tends, justice it tends and,
0: to get mapped onto, you know, other debates. I'm so, eye
1: rolling. Yes. Listen, we also appreciate right. cousin Cheryl, your, uh, very diplomatic approach because right. that's our approach. Like, yeah. look, We're, different, different people are going to feed their kids different stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And La Leche League you just be happy that your kids are going to be so much better than everybody else.
0: <laughs> right. Eventually, through evolution, you'll uh, win the argument, yeah. right? So, you're Well, fine. not if
1: they don't vaccinate their kids.
0: Well, that's a whole other thing <laughs> that we're not getting into. Vaccinate your kids, for God's sake. Well, yes, but we're not getting into it.
1: I don't want hooping cough.
0: <laughs> that's true. Nobody likes hooping. No. Except for certain cranes. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, but that was really great. It and was, we and I really just, appreciate people kind of doing some research on their own. Just yeah. because we have been wildly busy,
0: right? And uh, also, th- I mean, that just as as a man like Julian Fellows, it just it had not occurred to me. I mean, either. I'm a
1: lady with presumably fully functional boobs. One would think and we've never tried it, <laughs> right? <but laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, I think that that's what's so great about culture is that you can, you know, come into it from whatever you're going through in your regular life and and sort of, you know, spin it out from there. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations, cousin Cheryl. I hope your yoga pants are (laughs) fitting well these days and, uh, that you're not having to wake up too frequently in the middle of the night. Indeed. So that brings us to, uh, needing to wet nurse this thing through. (laughs)
0: That's right. We'll see it through. So Bates is leaving his cottage, sadly, oblivious to the chirping birds that the subtitles inform us of. And upstairs at Downton, Anna is sitting in her room, just, you know, staring into space for a bit. And then she uh, starts applying makeup to cover up the bruises on her face.
1: PTSD, man.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, this is off to an uplifting start already. Uh, And so when she comes downstairs, Bates is standing down there, to greet her and she asks why he does this every day. Every day he's always waiting because he wants to be the first to greet her every morning. Uh, she says there's no need and tries to go by, but he says that there's every need and he's going to continue doing it until she explains what's gone wrong between them. Um, that is, you know, he says his life has been destroyed in a day and that requires an explanation. Uh, at that point they are interrupted by Miss Baxter who is a person that exists now. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Uh, they already know her. She asked if they will help her. She says she uh, doesn't have any sockets to plug in her sewing machine in her bedroom. And the laundry room is, I guess, far away or something. And so she wanted to ask Mrs. Hughes if she could use it in the servants' hall. So Bates says, then ask Mrs. Hughes. And she's like, oh, okay. She's like, why did you ask them? She seems
1: like a great fit for McGee as ladies' maid. They're both <laughs> uh, not the sharpest tools in their respective sheds, <laughs> it would appear.
0: That's right. However, both Anna and Bates think that she is nice, so that's good. Bates, however, says that because she's nice, he wonders why their friend Thomas, what he could see in her, as, as we all know, Thomas is pure evil. Mm -hmm. Anybody
1: who's anybody knows Thomas is pure
0: evil. (laughs) Right. But as Anna says, you know the old saying, there's nought so queer as folk.
1: What am I, Russell T. Davies? (laughs) Like, is she gay? What's going on?
0: Right. Well, Thomas is a particularly queerest folk. He really is. He's the
1: queerest of all the
0: folk on this show. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, In any case, they go on to breakfast.
1: At breakfast, Mrs. Patmore asks Mrs. Hughes if it's all right that they're teaching Alfred to cook in the kitchen, and uh, Mrs. Hughes says to ask Carson, who's sitting right next to her. Right. So there's a lot of communication breakdowns going on below stairs. Right. It's very unclear why this is the case
0: right well i think it's i, think, well, I guess it's because
1: mrs patmore is
0: under mrs hughes's jurisdiction
1: well I so i think, think mrs sh- patmore is asking if it's okay for the girls to be helping alfred
0: right i'm not even sure to what extent patmore is is technically under hughes's jurisdiction i think she has her own jurisdiction yeah um uh, but i think more what it is is that i think patmore knew she needed to ask carson but she didn't really want to because <laughs> it's you know like you know you ask mom instead of asking dad yeah you know
1: at any rate, Alfred has not been accepted for the test as of yet, but they are training him just in case he gets to go. And so Carson says that it's fine since Alfred is a hard worker, which I guess means that, you know, Jimmy can't can't have his gigolo lessons like he wants because <laughs> he is not a hard worker.
0: But they're accepting four new gigolos at the Ritz. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mrs. Patmore says she was just checking that she wasn't exciting a revolution. <laughs> 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 the mercia bell rings and carson and therefore everyone else stands up and he heads out
0: to go see the Mercia, i assume
1: i think what's well, the name of the room
0: i know quit
1: being a smart ass
0: i'm just being a smart ass oh my god in McGee's room baxter sets McGee's breakfast tray on her lap somewhat apprehensively she says she thinks she's remembered everything but she will stay while McGee checks uh, McGee says that it looks perfect, except there's this bizarre orange substance on it. It doesn't seem to be tea at all. Um, and Baxter says that she knew that Americans often drink orange juice at breakfast, and so she thought McGee might like to, and McGee is delighted.
1: Probably the happiest she's been since whatever the happiest moment was before she married Lord Grant. <laughs> right.
0: Possibly that time also involved orange juice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Shirley MacLaine. <laughs>
0: So Baxter uh, heads out as Lord Grantham comes in and says that McGee looks jovial. Uh, she says that Baxter has reminded her of times gone by.
1: Times that didn't involve you. <laughs> right.
0: When she would sip her orange juice as she looked out over the rolling Ohio <gasps> River. Because
1: she's Cincinnati. That's right. Just like me. Hooray. Where we all say luncheon.
0: <laughs> That's right. As we eat our chili.
1: <laughs> and our ice cream. <laughs> right. And our ribs.
0: Mm now i'm hungry
1: i know we should have not talked about this this early in the podcast. that's right <laughs> cousins do you have any food can you send it to our house if so we want you to do that <laughs> right
0: <laughs> uh, lord grantham tells mcgee that he has been summoned to the library by branston mary they apparently have some idea they want to discuss McGee hopes that they won't fight about it, and Lord Grantham is like, "Well, I, can I promise that when I don't even know what the idea is?" But McGee is just strung out on orange juice. She doesn't.
1: She's walking on orange juice. Whoa! She's walking on orange juice. Whoa! She's walking on orange juice, and don't it feel nice? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But enough of all this, you say. When will we learn more about the mysterious pegs? What of the pegs? Don't worry, because Dr. Clarkson has come by Isabel's to discuss that very subject. Oh, good. Yeah, so evidently there's another peg we didn't know about, uh, a boy who needs a job. In fact, if Isabel wants to really help Mrs. Peg, as it is extremely well established that she does with plenty of exposition. Oh, yeah, definitely. Getting this boy a job would be more use than all the tea and sympathy in the world.
0: You know, I think that if she had all the tea and sympathy in the world, she could become a wealthy tea magnate, and then he wouldn't need a job at all. Yeah,
1: and she could counsel the young homosexuals (laughs) native to Ripon. (laughs) That's right. Uh, (laughs) Isabel Cromley's Whore and Homosexual Institute. (laughs) It's an institution as old as the workhouse itself. (laughs) Isabel uh, doesn't really need anybody else to work with her, but Clarkson wants to meddle around Downton and maybe even meddle with old lady Grantham, and uh, keep meddling until the
0: pegs are happy That's because right. God knows the pegs are frightfully important. Well, they've been through so much that biscuit was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Poor
1: Kreta. <laughs> Yeah, what about Greta? Yeah. you like, talk about Mrs. Pegg all you want. But what about Greta? That's right. That's who we care about. That's where the emotional investment is at yeah. this point.
0: She's the goods. She is the goods. In the Peg family.
1: <laughs> she should go to London and hook up with Violette Selfridge. <laughs> yes. Then they'd get the world of rights. That's right. At any rate, the Dowager Countess is a good choice to meddle with because she takes her garden seriously. Uh, which doesn't make any sense. right? Uh, but Isabel says, you don't have to tell me that because how could we all forget the time <laughs> right. that Isabel caused the Dowager Countess to lose her long-running prize of best flowers to old Mr. Mosley, who's now her BFF
0: and secret star of my <laughs> Downton Abbey fan fiction. <laughs> yes. In the library... Uh, Branson and Mary have just told Lord Grantham that somebody died, apparently, uh, so he's going to go to the funeral. Apparently, it's some family that have been tenants at Downton since George the Third. Well, um, maybe
1: the previous tenants left to go to the Americas and get some of that sweet, sweet
0: freedom. That's possibly. Or maybe they were all mad. Ah, as hatters. That's right. Whatever the reason, they haven't paid rent in ages, and... They have been served with all the necessary papers and they think it's time to, uh, foreclose on them, take over the farm and, and farm it themselves. Lord Grantham says that it's sad, which I suppose is true, but Mary says that the world moves on and we must move with it. Um. Didn't
1: somebody already say that?
0: I think so. I think
1: it might have been her.
0: I think you're, I think you're right. That does sound right.
1: Maybe she's just like, that's her mantra. That's yeah. what she's saying to keep herself from falling
0: apart. <laughs> well, it worked on Lord Grantham one time, so she keeps trying it again.
1: <laughs> He's Pavlov's Grantham.
0: <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham then gets his revenge, I suppose, by showing Mary something in the newspaper, and it is uh, Gilly's engagement notice. Mm-hmm. So, wedding bells are going to chime for Miss Mabel Lane Fox. <laughs> And Mary says that she must write and congratulate him, but then as she walks away, she's like all upset about it.
1: You've really got to hand it to Michelle Dockery.
0: That is true. She
1: is a phenomenal actress. And I hope that whatever happens to her after this is quite good.
0: I agree. Definitely.
1: Downstairs, the servants have gathered to marvel at the sewing machine, uh, which presumably Miss Baxter has gotten permission to use in the servants' hall.
0: Right. Or she's just a rebel that plays by her own rules.
1: I don't think so. <laughs> Daisy asks Baxter if she's worried that it will run away with itself and sew her fingers to the table. Uh, Miss Baxter says that she hopes that doesn't happen, and <laughs> thanks for putting that image in my mind. <laughs> Alfred asks how she, she runs it, and it is pedal-operated. Uh, but Pat Moore doesn't think it belongs in the servants' hall or anywhere. Thomas uh, helpfully points out that Missus Patmore is not what you'd call a futurist, and Baxter cheekily says that she had picked up on that. <laughs> right. uh, Anna comes in and Bates greets her, and she immediately turns around and leaves. It's yeah. like it's awful; like yeah. she's more like closed yeah. off than she has been before. So this is not good, right? And Missus Hughes apologizes to Mister Bates for uh, keeping Anna so busy, and then. Walks out of the room after her. Right. And then uh, Baxter asks if Daisy would like to have a try at the sewing machine, and her face lights up. Yeah. And we're like, oh my God, anything to get her away from this whole Alfred thing. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. And I will. Like, also- marry
1: the sewing machine. <laughs> it's both more attractive and less stupid than Alfred.
0: <laughs> That's right. I'll say, too, that in, in Daisy's defense about being worried about the machine sewing her fingers, I was also very concerned about the sewing machine. I mean, admittedly, that was when I was like eight but, but I mean, it's
1: possible it's a yeah, needle yeah like, and it's, it's moving
0: quite fast it's 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 a disturbing looking device i'm
1: very bad at sewing uh which is why it is hilarious that your mother got me a sewing machine as a wedding gift <laughs> it, well, uh yes after my failed attempts in a costume <laughs> shop during college <laughs> oh man yeah so cousins don't expect me to sew you anything it's not gonna happen yeah <laughs> I never even took at that sewing machine. It's probably still at your parents' house. It
0: probably is. They don't even... Oh, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we
1: don't know you well enough to get into that right now.
0: Uh, as Anna walks down the hall, Hughes calls after her and uh, says that she doesn't know why she's being so hard on Bates. And she says, at least you know now there'll be no baby. Woo! <laughs>
1: Oh, Thank God. Okay. Yeah. We. Oh, man. We were so happy. Yes. We can't even tell you how happy we were. That's not where this is going. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure we're still not going to like wherever it goes. Right. But at least we're not doing that. Yes. Like, I just can't with that. Right.
0: Agreed. In the meantime, Anna is still not going to tell Bates because Bates would know she was lying. She can, He can see through her. He can read her like a book. That's not how books work. No, that's if true. A book
1: can be seen through, it is not, in fact, a book. Yeah. It's not anything.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Like, maybe it's like one of the, maybe it's like Google Glass or something. <laughs> but They haven't even invented or thought of that yet.
0: No, you're right. That would be very anachronistic. So, Anna,
1: I know you're traumatized, but let's get your <laughs> metaphors together, okay? <laughs> That's right.
0: This is What important. separates
1: us from the animals.
0: <laughs> Hugh says that she wishes Bates could read her and take her out of this veil of shadows. Uh, and Anna says that she wants to be honest with him, but she can't risk his future. Hughes says that it is Anna's secret, but that Hughes thinks that it is a mistake. Uh, so Anna walks off, but then the camera moves back and looks around the corner, and there is Bates. <gasps> he heard everything.
1: Like, you'd think they wouldn't talk about it in the hall.
0: Yeah. Although I'll say that, you know, one thing that that the show has been pretty consistent about, and it's it's been mem- emphasized more in this plot line, is just living in this house with the same people mm-hmm. all the time, every day, you know, like you're all, all on top of each other, you all know, all the time, all the time. Yeah.
1: Back at Isabel's, Isabel asks Peg Jr. who we have christened Peglet. That's right. Uh, if he has a feel for gardening and he says that he does your ladyship, but Isabel corrects him to call her Mrs. Crawley, which is good. Yep. Cause she's not nobility. That's right. She's just a filthy old meddling commoner. <laughs> Peglet says he's a grafter and a quick learner.
0: Right. So is that... What does he mean? Is grafter a metaphor? I don't know. Or does he literally mean that that's the only thing he can do in the garden? I don't know. Well,
1: I'm assuming maybe... We like can't the- express how poorly this whole, like, this plot line is like, oh, no, no they'll, they'll pick up on the vagaries of I'm, British am, gardening.
0: Like, I am as, as certain as it's possible to be that there was a scene cut from the last episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I it seemed like it at the time, but now, with the way things have gone, there has to have been. I'm
1: curious, maybe the British cut has it in.
0: Possibly. But I feel like
1: if it did, we would have heard more about it
0: possibly i yeah i mean i just don't know yeah well anyway we'll, we'll be anyway. getting our
1: dvd shortly so we will figure this out that's right isabel says she can't promise anything to peglet but she will try and find him something uh peglet calls her your ladyship again which is really not a great sign for a right. prospect because
0: that was like 30 seconds yeah ago. like
1: these are simple directions <laughs> right like how stupid are you yeah did his father die of excessive dumbness like, <laughs> right
0: like if you're doing this you're gonna be like grafting a rose to a Daisy or something and yeah. then who knows what's going to happen right
1: Alice in Wonderland that's what yikes So then Isabel brings for a servant who comes in, but it's a guy. But, like, she – was she lying to (laughs) Mosley? Right. Was she just like, I want a butler, but I don't want you? But I'm
0: sick of looking at your face. Right.
1: But, like, also, like, any male servant, doesn't he automatically get upgraded to butler? Right. If his job is showing people in and out and
0: he's the only one around? Right. Or is it just like – is it like a, like, you know, mega footman? Like, somehow there's this (laughs) – Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, footman first class.
1: Yeah, yeah we have I, no idea. I, yeah, uh, so whatever that guy's deal is, he <laughs> yeah. shows Peglet out, and Isabel says that Peglet will be disappointed by how ordinary she, Isabel, is. Right? Like, hasn't he already been? He kept trying to call you your ladyship, and right. you had to keep correcting him. Like, yeah, like that ship is stale. <laughs> right. I mean, also, his name is Peglet. I think he's pretty disappointed already.
0: Right. And he's not going to be in your household. Like, are you really planning to see that? Her much
1: meddling him? knows no bounds. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so Clarkson is there because, uh, of course, he's there. Right. He's, he's always been there, Mr. <laughs> Torrance. Like, I don't understand. Anyway. So he says that the village sees her as part of the family, meaning the family Crawley. Right. Uh, but Isabel says that's not how the family sees it, although they've always been kind. And then Dr. Clarkson says that Lord Grantham admires her at least, but if it serves her to see herself unloved, then nothing he says will make any difference, Yeah, which is a fair point. But then Isabel's like, well, that's very harsh. And I'm like, isn't that what you just told him to say? Yeah.
0: And also, was, come on. That was a good insight from Clarkson there.
1: Why don't they just get married? I that know. would be so much more interesting than this peglet thing.
0: Well, they almost did and then didn't for some reason.
1: She just didn't like him. Well, yeah. But- which is fine. But like, look... Julian Fellows has certainly not uh, allowed things that didn't make any sense before to prevent him from bringing them back now.
0: Indeed. Uh, In the cemetery, the funeral for the farmer that died is letting out. And the farmer's son comes up to Lord Grantham and they exchange the usual, you know, it was a good service, that sort of thing. The son is still staying at Yew Tree Farm. And Lord Grantham says to let them know when he's he's ready to leave, no hurry. Uh, However... This guy doesn't want to move out of U Tree Farm. He wants to take on the tenancy. And Lord Grantham says that he doesn't think that that's possible because it's already, the eviction's already been served and everything like that. Uh, the son says, so you want to farm it yourself somewhat accusatorily. And Lord Grantham- You
1: mean this own that I, this land that I own
0: outright? That you, your father did not pay rent on? And Lord Grantham says, "Mr. Drew, it's no good painting me as Simon Legree."
1: Uh, I don't think he knows who Simon Legree <laughs> is because <laughs> Simon Legree was actually a slave trader. Well, uh, an overseer, and uh, that is not what's going on here, <laughs> right? The, the like Simon Legree did not own the land, right? That little like you know, the sins uh, of
0: Simon Legree, topsy or whatever, lived on. We're not, you know. Uh, uh overzealous evictions. Like, yeah, that's he was he was
1: genociding
0: people. Oh, right. Primarily. That was, that was more the issue.
1: Yeah. Maybe he's thinking of Simon LeBlanc, <laughs> the notorious slum farmer.
0: <laughs> Could be in any case, Lord Grantham says that they gave Drew's father a long time to get straight and even when it was clear that it wasn't going to, they let it go since he was dying. They weren't going to kick him out while he was dying. Um, but Drew says that his father never told him that there was problems with the rent, and he would have tried to help him. And that they farmed yew trees since the Napoleonic Wars, which at first I thought was after George III, but then I looked it up. George III reigned for 60 years, Wow, which is pretty impressive for somebody who was barking mad.
1: Well, you know, honestly, <laughs> if you're that crazy, you probably don't have a lot of stress and your heart is like really healthy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and he says that surely that's got to mean something. And of course, to Lord Grantham, it definitely does mean something.
1: Wait a minute. Something that shouldn't mean something to me should mean something
0: <laughs> to me? You're hired. Right. I love it when people talk about George III. <laughs> uh, so he, he agrees that To let uh, Drew come and make his pitch in the library the next morning. But he doesn't think it will help.
1: I just want to point out that the Drews live on U Tree Farm. They sure do. Ugh. (laughs) Dr. Seuss's nightmare. They tried to call it
0: Drew Tree Farm, but they got in trouble for (laughs) uppityness.
1: Yeah, I... I don't like this plot line. Like... I guess I'm just enough of a fiscal conservative to be like, "Uh, look, suck it, guy."
0: (laughs) Right. I'm more sympathetic than you are, but I think it's more.
1: Honestly, at no point in the several times we've watched the episode today, heard the thing about how his father hadn't told him that he was in difficulty. Yeah. So that does change it a bit.
0: It changes it a bit. Now, what I would also say is the the point of it for Lord Grantham is that his, you know, his whole way of thinking about. The unearned privileges that he was born into mm-hmm. is that they come with responsibilities that he is mm-hmm. you know the the sort of father of the whole you know estate and right it, it's in his care as a, a temporary trust mm-hmm. and not as something that he owns per se so that's you know that's what it's about i mean it's it's not quite the same thing as as you know just some piece of land that you bought
1: true. True Yew Tree Farm. (laughs) Down in the kitchen, Daisy is teaching Alfred how to cook, and Mrs. Patmore says something smells good. Alfred is making tarts with an egg and cheese filling. Uh, I believe these are called quiches.
0: Uh, On the contrary, apparently.
1: Yeah, Mrs. Patmore says they're called bouchers de fromage. Right. I think that's how you pronounce that. Yeah, he says Patmore has much better French pronunciation than me. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so they could be tonight's savory if they turn out well. And Alfred goes off to fetch the eggs, and Patmore compliments Daisy, uh, who says it's very hard helping him to leave, which we all understand, but also Daisy, Jesus! <laughs> yeah. Get with that sewing machine. Yeah. It'll give you the greatest pleasure <laughs> you've ever known. <laughs> Anyway, Patmore says that it's just as it should be now that he's decided to go. She's being a good friend. Yeah. Alfred comes back and Daisy tells him that they'll add egg and cheese to the white sauce if Patmore doesn't mind. And she doesn't. She says you can help him enrich the bechamel.
0: And it just, I, you know, I think it was completely unintentional, but it just came off as like this weirdly suggestive, like, enrich the bechamel, eh? Huh? Huh?
1: That I should remember that because now I want to write some sort of like Top Chef <laughs> inspired fan fiction.
0: Well, with then, uh,
1: uh, Tom Calicchio enriching his bechamel all over Podma's face.
0: <laughs> well, keep watching the episode. There may be more material to come.
1: You mean batter?
0: <laughs> and I do mean to come. <laughs> We're sorry, everyone. We are. Not really. (laughs) You made your choice to listen.
1: (laughs) Um, You can stop now. That's right. Nobody's making you. Yeah.
0: In the front hall, Edith comes in and sees that Carson has received the afternoon post and asks if there's anything for her. Uh, There is not. McGee asks if she was expecting anything, and she says, oh, not really. She just hasn't heard from Michael in a bit. So we can all see the writing on the wall here that is also not the tree for edith oh my god when is she gonna get a goddamn tree i know and it's it's a shame
1: it's boring yeah like nobody else has a successful relationship because they both died
0: <laughs> right like this was there was plenty of legitimate obstacles in this relationship <laughs> to keep it
1: interesting yeah Ugh. anyway we don't know what's gonna happen
0: right but we <sighs>
1: In the library, Mary is sitting at her writing desk and uh, she hurriedly blinks away tears when Mcgee and Edith walk in and she tells him that she's writing to Gilly. Right. And Mcgee weirdly says, send him my love.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Edith is surprised uh, that Gilly's engaged because she thought he was keen on Mary and Mary says, not the first time you've got the wrong end of the stick. Oh, hey. Remember how Mary and Edith fucking hate each other? <laughs> uh,
0: apparently. I'm
1: excited, though, that even yeah. if Edith's tree has absconded <laughs> uh, to the Hun, that, you know, yeah. she and Mary are going to be back at each other's throats.
0: Which is nice. Also, a bit of a low blow on Mary's part, since she, in fact, had the right end of the stick. Yeah. but Well, uh, look. Hey, she's she's in bereavement over yeah. Gilly for some bitch reason. bitch mode. <laughs> yeah.
1: Rose flounces in, and she's just so... She's just so, like, clearly this replacement for Sybil, <laughs> who's not an adequate replacement for Sybil at all.
0: Right. But I, I, I mean, I do sort of like how she just has her own, like...
1: Agenda? Agenda, like, like and she's just... comportment, n- like... Yeah, her I own... I mean, it, it yeah, works. Her own... It's surprising how much it works. Yeah. it seems like it shouldn't work. She's just so... I mean, she is so of a different time than all of the rest of them
0: right right
1: uh but so she comes in and mcg thought that was lord grantham which reminds her that we should discuss his
0: birthday
1: (laughs) And mary asks if mcg had any plans and she says no not beyond his favorite food it's not a special one
0: right which i was confused when i heard that because i thought she was implying that lord grantham's food favorite food is not a special food
1: it's probably not no
0: i mean i was like well it's probably something terrible (laughs) right
1: So Mary suggests that they have a party. Rose, of course, is thrilled. She's like, finally, something to do around here. (laughs) Yeah. It's got to be like living in a museum for her. Yeah. I mean, not that she didn't have the same experience at Dun Eagle.
0: Right. But, but at least, that like, was you know, such a dysfunctional family and well, she and, could act out and, and you, she, know. you
1: know, she had grown up there, too. So, I mean, you know, right, right. She knew how. To, well, actually, no, she didn't. Didn't they live in London sometimes?
0: Well, I mean, she grew up in that. Yeah, household. that's true. Anyway. Was, yeah. But
1: she spent a lot more time in London as a young girl than the other. Right. Than right. The cousins did for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because the, the father did something.
1: I forget. Yeah, we don't care. We don't care about old, uh, <laughs> what was his name? What did we call her dad? Because it was Susan. Oh, uh, Shrimpy. 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 We didn't call him that. Yeah. Julian
0: Fellows called him that. <laughs> That's right. Shrimpy. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm glad we remembered that. (laughs) Really? The best part of these podcasts going
1: forward (laughs) is remembering things that (laughs) happen in the first two series. (laughs)
0: Right. (gasps) At the Dowager house, Isabel is trying to sell the Dowager Countess on Peglet.
1: In an amazing ensemble. Isabel yes. looks great. Yeah, and that never happened. That's
0: true. But she's that- got a
1: very jaunty hat on, like a hat yes. that's actually better than the cool hat that the Dowager had on right, in the previous right. episode. Yeah. So, well,
0: Isabel's is like more modern.
1: Yeah, she's very. She's looking very snappy. She's uh. She's got her groove back, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah. How Isabel got her groove back? Meddling.
1: <laughs> Get your medal on, girl. <laughs>
0: Uh, the dowager says that Mailey may have a candidate of his own, so that's presumably the head gardener, but Isabel says, aha, so you do need somebody. And the dowager says she supposes they do that the last boy went off to a frightfully grand rectory. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> no, I know. It was like... <laughs>
1: I mean, it's just, you know, like
0: rectory. Right. Rectum. <laughs> what? It's, it's not. Okay. Yeah, but Isabel says that Peglet impressed her so... The Dowager says that she wonders that her halo doesn't grow heavy. It must be like wearing a tiara around the clock.
1: Which sounds great to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, wait till you, 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 know, you feel your neck after 48 hours. <laughs> uh, Isabel says that Mama Peg would be so grateful, as would Isabel. But the Dowager Countess says that Isabel's gratitude never lasts. As soon as she's done something, Isabel comes back with another request.
1: Yeah, a.k.a. meddling. That's right. Meddle all night. Meddle all day. (laughs) Isabel Crawley style.
0: Yeah. Isabel doesn't even respond to that and just keeps, you know, meddling away. And finally the Dowager gives in but says that he'd better turn out to be everything Isabel says he is.
1: Uh, y'all, strap in. (laughs)
0: Because
1: you know what happens? What? Babies. (gasps) Babies? Both of the babies. Oh
0: my gosh, Um, finally.
1: Right? Breathe a sigh of relief, grandmothers of America. <laughs> they are here. Yes. So Mary walks into the nursery where Branson is playing with Sibby and George. And Mary says she thought she'd get in an extra 10 minutes before the gong, uh, which I'm sure George appreciates seeing his <laughs> right. mother in 10 minute increments.
0: That's, uh, that's the way they did it. I know. Anyway,
1: Branson says that Sibby told him there's going to be a hurricane. Yeah. And Mary says, in Yorkshire.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, I like... Ah, this is like my
1: favorite scene that's ever happened.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I just like Mary's, like, talking to a baby voice because it's so very, like... It's not that dissimilar from her normal voice, but you can or even tell that she's. Voice. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's the effort is there. Yeah.
1: But Branson says they're getting all the animals under shelter. Yeah, they're and, playing with a bunch of toy animals. Yeah, and Mary has picked up George and sits down with him on her lap. She asks where Nanny is. Good question. <laughs> right. Branson says she's getting some clothes from the far-flung laundry we've heard so much about. Yeah. Is Mary, it like in the village? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I honestly have yeah. no idea. I mean, it's probably off-site because they would have been using really harsh cleansers at the Could time. Could be. No. So they'd want to be keeping it away from, like, the rest of, like, the water supply and stuff. True. Anyway. Yeah. Mary says that nanny is much more relaxed than her nanny was and her childhood wasn't anything like Sibby's and Branson's like yeah mine either and (laughs) I'm like well duh yeah weren't you like raised by a potato (laughs) (laughs) that's how the Irish do (laughs) right then at your first communion you fry them up into hash browns and you have a nice meal (laughs) you're an adult in the eyes of the Lord i don't know how your family did it i'm just saying mary asks if he thinks uh sibby is having a good childhood and branson says that he thinks mary's doing her best for her if that's what he she means but she says it isn't this is a weird exchange yeah but i think i
0: I parse it out this last time is just
1: you know she wants to i think she's asking because they've both lost their spouse and I, i got the impression she was asking about george and sibby like just sort of wanting some mutual validation like we're like fine right
0: right right well and i think in and just sort of asking after her but i think it makes more sense in context with branson's later scene that he takes it as a question about the family's treatment of Sibi. Oh. yeah like
1: have they called her a wicked little cross <laughs> right,
0: right or something like that which is not what mary was asking yeah yeah uh
1: anyway uh Branson tells Sibby that it's time for the hurricane, and he knocks the toys over, and Sibby says, "Uh- oh, and it's yeah. clearly she has a British accent, yes, and it is so cute, and, and George, oh my God, George is like flipping out, yeah, like his ah, oh, his little head moves, and yeah. he is like looking at it, and oh, babies, oh, so cute, cousins, do you have a baby? <laughs> Will you send it to us? <laughs> if so, we want your baby, <laughs> don't do
0: that, yeah. That would be... That We're not is,
1: monsters, and neither are you.
0: That is most certainly illegal.
1: <laughs> if you're going to do it, poke holes in the box so
0: that the baby <laughs> can read. It's just common sense.
1: Or, you know, better yet, ship it overnight.
0: <laughs> That's right. But downstairs, Carson brings Alfred a letter. It's the letter we've all been waiting for, and everybody gathers not around... Not me! ...while right. Uh, he says he can't bear to open it. What so a bitch. Pat Moore takes it, and of course, they are going to give him the test. I mean, after all, we wouldn't have spent all this screen time on something if it wasn't actually going to end up working out.
1: Uh, I'm sorry. Are you familiar with Julian <laughs> Fellows? Are you familiar with Gilly? <laughs> the recent unpleasantness thereupon.
0: I am. <laughs> uh, however, the test is the day after tomorrow. The letter had been lost in the mail for a few days. Oh,
1: man. Somebody called Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> um...
0: But Bates uh, says that Alfred will be fine. He knows his stuff. Pat Moore agrees. Daisy also agrees, however reluctantly. Uh, Anna comes in, and Jimmy Kent fills her in on the whole doings. Uh, and she says that she's happy for Alfred. And then Bates says, Anna, but the gong rings. And Anna, you know, scurries away. Pat Moore tells Bates not to worry that Anna's got ever so much on her plate. And Bates says, haven't we all?
1: Uh, not as much as Anna.
0: Right. And it's also interesting because, you know, you wonder what Pat Moore makes out of all this.
1: Yeah, actually. And I hadn't thought that the first time that we watched this episode, but this time I was like, I wonder if Mrs. Hughes, Mrs. Hughes, I don't think would have confided in her.
0: I don't think so. But I also
1: think that to an extent, like the younger women, probably not. But I feel like, you know, Mrs. Pat Moore has been working in a kitchen for however many years. She's got to have seen this before. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's just interesting. Yeah. And that's clearly not the uh it's not Baron Fellows's intention to get into all that, but Right, right. You know, it just seems, you know, Pat Moore would certainly interpret Anna moving back into the house. Uh and I'm I'm surprised at how little everybody else is talking about it.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, you know, what you, there's nothing to talk about. I mean, especially since Anna's made it very clear that, that she doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, and that this cover story is she's sticking with it. Mm-hmm. So,
1: in McGee's room, uh, Baxter is dressing McGee and saying that the servants downstairs were talking about Lady Sybil. McGee doesn't really say anything, and it's a bit of a tense moment. And Baxter then says she's not sure if she should mention Sybil at all, but McGee says no, she likes to hear her name. Baxter says there wasn't anything but a word of praise for her and they all hope that she can do better than that weird unicorn movie that's coming out. <laughs> As uh, do we. Yes. McGee asks Baxter to tell Pat Moore that McGee will see her tomorrow because she's thinking of buying a refrigerator for the house. Oh my. Lord Grantham comes in and Baxter leaves. Lord Grantham is surprised about the refrigerator and McGee says that it will cut waste to a fraction because uh, somebody needs to be trying to save some goddamn money around here. <laughs> God. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks how Baxter is working out, and McGee says splendidly. Yes, I mean they do seem to be getting along very well. Yeah, uh, Miss Baxter does not appear to be appreciably evil. Right, which is not you know yeah, definitely she's... an upgrade from <laughs> you know the bangs of Miss O'Brien and yeah. the witch face. <laughs> That's right of uh, that weight. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that Drew is coming in the morning, but not to say anything to Mary and Tom until lord grantham has seen him right and mitchy asks what he wants and lord grantham says that he wants to stay on mitchy asks if it's possible and lord grantham says it's not what mary and tom want uh so no
0: (laughs) right which brings us to our recurring segment in which our fridge fanatic kelly will tell us a little something about the fashions of the time in fashion backwards
1: i kind of Feel like this season we ought to be calling this inspecting gadgets. Uh, <laughs> that's,
0: a, that's a fun name.
1: It is a fun name. Well, it's really weird because just for some context for you cousins, I have been trying to do actual fashion research, mm-hmm. and I ran into this before, and I was kind of concerned about once we actually got into the twenties right, that this right. would be the case. But I mean most of what we know or what is findable on the right. internet about fashion in the 20s we've already covered. Mm-hmm. You know, we covered sort of the transition from Victorian fashions into Edwardian into this post World War 1 period. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that there's a lot of really highly detailed information available about the Edwardian period, but then once World War 1 happens, it's like everything's very vague. It's like cloche hats, flapper dresses, prohibition. And I'm like, <laughs> you're not even in the right country. Right. Um, but that's why we haven't really been talking about it. Cause we can see in each episode, we can see the subtle progression and the way that things are becoming more modern, mm-hmm. but there's not a ton of information, about this particular time period right like they started talking about like chanel and sort of the silent film actresses you know popularizing things but a lot of that didn't happen until mid-decade mm. so it's not super clear if you do have a line on a website that's a good resource for this kind of thing definitely let us know we may yeah. reach out to evangeline holland mm-hmm. uh which we have not done yet this season it doesn't really feel right that we haven't done that no that's true go to edwardianpromenade.com
0: hurry you Ye- hurry hurry
1: him himity him him him, hurry listen i'll do the jokes (laughs) all right my segment i know (laughs) anyway um because i tried to look up more hats because i really liked isabel's hat and it's not quite a cloche i mean you can see that sort of silhouette Mm -hmm. but it was like you know all I could find was like later in the decade, big floppy hats were also popular, so it's very weird, yeah, that there's not a ton of info, yeah, um, and then people want to jump straight into the thirties right, and it's very bizarre, so anyway, we'll keep looking and see what we can come up with,
0: yeah, well, I've found even that this whole period like you know yeah there's more you know there are bits and pieces here with the thirties or whatever, but a lot of things if you're looking at just a like summary of you know from prehistoric times till now of almost anything like on wikipedia yeah it'll tend to be like up to world war one and then there's this just gap until after world war Two. yeah it's like well then europe went to shit for 30 years we can't
1: even get into this right now yeah <laughs> yeah so in any case that is why it's been a little bit more technology focused than actual fashion focused right. but you know there's there's plenty of things we'll we'll get into some other cool stuff yeah yeah so stay tuned <laughs> But for now, we will talk about the incredible inedible refrigerator. So in 1913, that's when refrigerators as we know it were invented. Up until that point, there had been ice boxes, obviously. Right. Um, and, you know, that technology, although it's funny to think of it as technology since it was primarily like wood, sawdust, and <laughs> ice. Right. But, you know, there was a strategy to it and that yeah. had to be invented. Um, that was created in like the 17th century or possibly the 18th. I should have printed that out as
0: well. Well, well.
1: But uh so a guy named Fred W. Wolf of Fort Wayne, Indiana, is the person who invented uh, refrigerators for home and domestic use. Uh, so basically, it was a unit that was mounted on top of an icebox. Oh, okay. Then in 1914, an engineer named Nathaniel B. Wales of Detroit, Michigan, uh, introduced an idea for a practical electric refrigeration unit, which later became the basis for the Kelvinator, <laughs> which is just fun to say. It
0: is. We had one of those. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was the refrigerator that we had in our basement was a Calvinator brand. Wow,
1: fascinating. Mm -hmm. A self-contained refrigerator with a compressor on the bottom of the cabinet was invented by Alfred Mellows in 1916. And it's really interesting how quickly, actually, this evolves once the basic technology began to exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's notable because prior to having the compressor on the bottom of the cabinet, uh, refrigerators were sort of like you know, very complex to install. Like you had to impress the, uh, install the compressor sort of in a room like behind the wall where you wanted to mount the refrigerator. Uh, It was a lot more like a, like a heating system Mm -hmm. than what we know today where it is just this totally self-contained box. Right. Right. So mellows produced his refrigerator commercially, but then he was bought out by William C Durant in 1918, who started the Frigidaire company, uh, to mass produce, Refrigerators. And then also in the same year, the Kelvinator company introduced the first refrigerator with any type of automatic control. Hmm. Uh, So I'm not entirely sure how the manual control worked. Right. Like, did you need to have somebody winding a crank all the time? (laughs) Right. That's not totally clear to me. Pulling a
0: starting cord?
1: Uh, At this point, refrigerator technology innovation moves overseas, and the absorption refrigerator was invented by Baltzar von Platten and Carl Munters from Sweden. And they were uh, students at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm in 1922. That became a worldwide success and was commercialized by Electrolux. And uh, a couple other people who contributed at this time were Charles Tallier, David Boyle, and Raoul Pictet. Carl von Lind was actually the first to patent and make a practical and compact refrigerator. So in 1922, there was a model of refrigerator that basically consisted of a wooden cold box. There were not, like, sort of metal refrigerators the way that we have now. Mm-hmm. A water-cooled compressor, uh, which along with the motor would have been, again, installed behind the wall in okay. the kitchen. And ice cube tray and a nine-cubic foot compartment. Uh And it cost $714. Wow. Yeah. Really cost prohibitive. For context, at this time, a Model T Ford was about $450. Wow. Yeah. In 1923, Calvinator had about 80% of the market for electric refrigerators. Hmm. But then Frigidaire introduced the first self-contained unit. And at this time, they switched over from wood to porcelain-covered metal cabinets. So it took uh, about, you know, say 10 years years for that technology and those materials to come into use. I'm honestly surprised that it took 10 years for them to realize that metal was a better conductor of cold. Yeah. Or, I, I just, or maybe they just needed to find the right metal or yeah. figure out how to make it non-toxic. Well, I
0: think, I mean, cause porcelain, I, I know, I just remember reading sometime how long it took people to find a way to, uh, make bathtubs Oh, really? because water corrodes everything. You can't make it out of metal. You yeah. can't make it out of so much else, you know, and, and that, you know, so I, I, yeah, I don't know if that's related.
1: Ice cube trays were also introduced in the 20s, uh, although, generally speaking, freezing was not an auxiliary function of the refrigerator. That actually happened much later, and uh, we're not getting into that today. So the first refrigerator actually see widespread use in homes was the General Electric Monitor Top, introduced in 1927. And it was uh, called that because it resembled the gun turret on the Ironclad Warship USS Monitor of the 1860s. (laughs) Like... Deep cut marketing department. (laughs) (laughs) I just, they've got the top minds. (laughs) in this flush economic boom time. And they're like, Alright, see, we've got this new refrigerator, see? And we've gotta make sure it makes a splash. What are we gonna call it? What 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 does it look like? And like just some crusty old guy is like, It reminds me of the gun turret on the USS monitor.
0: Well our marketing team says that Civil War reenactors are the biggest market for refrigerators.
1: <laughs> uh so The compressor assembly, uh, which put off a lot of heat, Mm. which is not super uh, useful. Uh, So it was placed above the cabinet and then surrounded with a decorative ring. (laughs) Jack Donaghy probably loves this story. (laughs) Uh, And They produced over a million units. And uh, as the refrigerating medium, a.k.a. the sort of gas Uh uh, or fluid that cooled artificially, They used either sulfur dioxide, which is corrosive to the eyes and may cause loss of vision, (laughs) painful skin burns and lesions, or methyl fomate, which is highly flammable, harmful to the eyes, and toxic if inhaled or ingested. Right. Uh, Apparently, if these are still around, they're still functional, but they cannot be legally recharged with the original refrigerants if they leak or break down. It's unbelievable. No. Because they figured out what uh, CFCs were in uh you know what the 80s the 70s and 80s they were like oh shit this stuff is destroying right. the environment <laughs> yeah but just you know refrigerators were death traps yeah for so much of their existence it's unbelievable yeah um they would also sometimes use ammonia as the cooling agent which uh is horrible yeah as well <laughs> So in the nineteen twenties, uh surprise, surprise, a bunch of fatal accidents in both the home and the workplace uh prompted researchers at General Motors and DuPont to look at alternative refrigerants. Mm-hmm. And uh Thomas Midgley, who was an engineer at General Motors Frigidaire Division, is the person who actually developed chlorofluorocarbon CFC. Yeah. And uh they were very stable, they were chemically inert, non-toxic, and non-flammable to humans, mm-hmm. not to the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, DuPont actually was the chemical chemical company that would produce it for them, and they patented under the name Freon. Right. Uh, so everybody was patting themselves on the back until the 80s when they realized that <laughs> yeah. they were destroying the planet.
0: Yeah. Which, to uh, be fair, is, I mean, is one of the more excusable failures of the chemical industry to me. That's true. Because at the time, like, did they even know about the ozone layer yet? Like- yeah,
1: so, uh, apparently they still haven't really solved that problem, mm. but, uh, hydrofluorocarbons are what we use now. Mm. Uh, I don't really know what that means. Nor do I. Nor does this Wikipedia article. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little bit more info. This is going a little bit into the future, but I think it's interesting because uh-huh. uh, the introduction of Freon, you know, I would assume that consumers were like, oh, hey, uh, these things won't kill us anymore, and I'm tired of having salmonella poisoning. <laughs> right. uh, so the refrigerator market was huge in the 30s, and uh, separate freezers also became common and the popular term for freezers in the 40s were the deep freeze ah. which sounds very sexy <laughs> um, but they didn't really go into mass production until after World War II and then obviously the huge manufacturing boom in the 50s and 60s uh, right. saw things like automatic defrosting automatic ice making and uh, refrigerators became vastly more efficient in the 70s and 80s despite all of the problems with uh, CFCs and everything mm-hmm. like that Frozen foods uh, actually didn 't occur until general food 's heiress Marjorie Merriweather post, then wife of Joseph E Davies, United States ambassador to the Soviet Union oh. uh, she deployed commercial grade freezers in spezo house the u s embassy in Moscow in advance of the davies arrival, and uh, they were afraid of the soviet union 's food processing safety standards, so they just completely stocked the freezers uh with products from the bird's eye unit. You can actually still buy bird's eye right, frozen right. uh vegetables. But basically they were able then to, you know, entertain very lavishly uh when things were out of season. It's not giving me a date on this. I'm mm. sure we could probably find out.
0: Well, sometime between nineteen nineteen and uh nineteen eighty nine.
1: Anyway, uh so that's a fun story about yeah. frozen food. Yeah. But um it's just it's interesting to think about what life was like before this happened. I right. Mean,
0: well, I was wondering, you know, that ice cube trays were such an early part of it. Like, how was ice generally served? Cause like it came in blocks, right? So. Oh,
1: yeah. I don't like, know. Like, I
0: mean, I know people had ice picks.
1: Well, maybe what they did was, you know, they had like the big ice cubes and then they would fill the ice cube. Like maybe it was just like a, like a free gift, you know, but you fill the ice trays and then you put it on top of the ice blocks oh, yeah. and you make little ice cubes.
0: Could be. No should have
1: uh, looked into the history of ice cubes, man. Well, maybe we will. Yeah, maybe yeah. we will. We'll see what happens. All
0: right. Well, thank you. You're
1: welcome. I look forward to inspecting more gadgets and <laughs> backwards in more fashion.
0: <laughs> in the still refrigeratorless kitchen, uh, everybody thinks that Alfred's tarts came out great. Daisy says she couldn't have done better herself.
1: I doubt that's true.
0: Right. Again, she should be taking this test. <gasps> um. Pat Moore tells Alfred to uh take them up to the family and tell them that he cooked them, and he says that he's you know, doesn't think that's that he can do that or whatever. And Jimmy Kent asks, What are they supposed to do? Hang out the flag? Which like
1: good point. Yeah. But they don't give a shit about him.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh but Patmore says not to grudge Alfred his success. Jimmy Kent says that he can't see life chained to a stove.
1: Uh well you're already chained to a manor house. Yeah, what
0: exactly is your plan, Jimmy (laughs) Kent?
1: He and a free-range stove are going to (laughs) frolic in the moors.
0: (laughs) Carson comes in and says, hey, bring up the Savories, people. Let's go.
1: Anna passes the Savories on her way down and then comes into the dining hall where Bates is sitting and reading. He asks what's going on and she says that Alfred's cooked the slavery. And she then immediately turns around. Bates asks if she can't even bear to be in the same room with him. Anna says once again that he's done nothing wrong, but then Bates says that she has because she's breaking his heart. Baxter comes in then and interrupts by asking Anna for help with the ladies' maid iron.
0: Yeah, which I'm not sure. Like, oh, you rub it on the clothes. I see.
1: Look, Baxter's clearly
0: (laughs) not all there. Sure. In possibly a smaller, different dining room. This has happened a couple times where it seems like
1: they're eating in a different... Room.
0: Well, but it's definitely a different table because it's round, Mm -hmm. and I mean, there's nobody there. Yeah, it's just the family, so that makes sense to an extent. But Lord Grantham compliments the savory. Everybody likes it. Uh, Mcgee says that she thinks that Alfred will pass his test. What the fuck does she know? Uh, She just had a delicious savory, Kelly. (laughs) Uh, Lord Grantham asks when the test is, and says that their best wishes go with him. And Carson clears his throat to let Alfred know that that's enough fraternizing with his betters. And Edith says that she happens to be going up herself tomorrow to visit Michael's office, which nobody says is weird. Yeah. Um, although, I mean...
1: Well, she did sign that mysterious document. Well, she
0: did sign that mysterious document. But also, like, is she still writing? Is that still the thing she's doing? Because we haven't heard... I would assume. Like, I would assume that, too. But I wish, I wish it got mentioned Me once too. in a while. Because, you know, that was her having value outside of her relationship.
1: Uh, Tom... Julian fellows don't play that.
0: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Downstairs, Baxter is sewing. She's never not sewing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know I guess she's doing more work than Braithwaite ever did. <laughs> That's true. So Thomas smirks on in and asks how she's getting on with McGee, and Baxter says she's getting on well. And uh, Thomas asks if she's done America and praise Lady Sybil, and this did surprise us. Right. We uh we, we did not re- see this one coming. Yeah.
0: So well played, Baxter, to fool us at home.
1: Yeah. Uh, she has done these things. Thomas says that McGee will be eating out of Baxter's hand. And then Thomas also praises her for not having enemies downstairs. That was Miss O'Brien's mistake. Like, uh, also, like.
0: Um, O'Brien was fine. She's
1: been here for like five days. Like, yeah. you know, give her some time to <laughs> yeah. make some enemies. Uh, Baxter observes that they don't like Thomas much downstairs, and he says that's why Baxter's here. Right. And he pauses on the way out to say that actually, Lady Sybil was a very nice person. And then Baxter says that'll make it easy to keep up. Like, are they planning a violent coup? <laughs>
0: right. Like, I it's very understand. weird. Like, very odd.
1: I, I am, like what,
0: I am again. Thomas, he's under Butler,
1: and like, has more or less stayed out of trouble recently. Yeah. Like I don't understand why he's got to go back to his scheming ways.
0: Right. He's doing fine. In Mary's room, Mary asks Anna if it's true that she's moved into the house again. And Anna says that it seemed easier when she was looking after McGee as well. But Mary says that, you know, McGee has her own maid now. Why don't you go back to the cottage? And Anna's just like, oh, I I haven't gotten around to it. And Mary says that she wishes that Anna would tell her if she is in difficulties. But Anna says that she she swears that she isn't. And And it's... It's, again, interesting, you know, this so intimate and yet so not intimate mm-hmm. relationship.
1: Well, and also, I mean, it is the British thing. Right. You know, where right. you're not going to be pressing someone right. beyond a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. In the kitchen, Alfred comes in to say goodbye and thank everybody for their help. Uh, so it's presumably the next day. Right. Patmore tells him to keep calm, and Ivy wishes him luck. Alfred asks if there's anything else that he ought to know about London, and Mrs. Patmore <laughs> says, there's actually a
0: lot. Right.
1: First of all, stay away from platform nine and three quarters. <laughs> Whatever you do.
0: Yeah, and if anybody asks you to sign anything, for God's sake, read it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Carson says there's no time for all that, though, and heads out with Alfred. Mrs. Patmore tells the maze that when McGee comes down, she doesn't want any back chat. I don't think they give her much back
0: chat. Right.
1: And, like, they certainly know better than to give her back chat in front of McGee. Right. Like, look, I think... Izzy may be dumber than a post, but she at least knows that much.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: McGee should see everything in order. And I like this side of Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. And just her really taking pride in what she does. I mean, really, she seems like the most career oriented woman on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just because we almost never get to see her doing anything else. Right. Right. Except for that time when that weirdo was trying to bone her. Wow. Well. Uh,. <laughs> And we all agreed that this is where she belongs. Yes. Daisy asks what happened to her apron. Uh, apparently, Patmore tore it without realizing. And Thomas comes in as Patmore's fretting that her other aprons in the again laundry
0: right. that is so very far <laughs> away. <laughs> right. It'll uh, take weeks to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, Thomas tells her that hey, Baxter will sort out your apron.
0: Well, hooray. Uh, out front, Edith uh, is heading out to the car and Carson asks if she minds that Alfred uh, will ride in the front of the car as he is taking the same train and of course she's fine with that. She says good luck to Alfred and Carson tells Edith that it's Alfred's first trip to London and Edith says oh how exciting.
1: She's like I already spent every ounce of caring I have about this ginger. Yeah,
0: like I said good luck. Yeah. Would you get in the front now? Jesus. For God's sake, I have a mysterious errand to run. <laughs>
1: It's really taking up all of my
0: time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Edith says it's exciting, and Alfred says, that's one word for it, and Carson scowls at Alfred.
1: Appropriate! Like, just yeah. shut up, idiot! Yeah. God, they're letting you go.
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, Jimmy Kent, who is holding the door, is just sort of smirking in the background. That's
1: pretty much all he does. Yeah.
0: And, uh, and the chauffeur drives them both off. It's like, so, I hear chauffeurs sometimes get to marry the uh, daughters around here. Is that true? <laughs>
1: I've got my eye on Lady Edith, if
0: you must know. (laughs) Oh, she's here.
1: (laughs) In the library. I thought the other one was Edith. In the library, Lord Grantham's talking with Drew, who said he wants to take back the lease, even though he can't pay all of the arrears, which does not seem like a very enticing offer or something you would even propose. Oh, right. I mean, I'm well, sorry. I mean,
0: he doesn't have, he simply can't pay it all back. It's the only proposition he can make. <sighs> but anyway, if, hey.
1: I, if I was this guy, I'd be like, you know what? Better luck next, farm. Use, <laughs> uh, Literally hat in hand. Drew says uh, that he'll pay and it won't take long, but Lord Grantham is not convinced. Drew is very conspicuously wearing his black morning armband. Indeed I just is. don't like the cut of this guy's jib. No. Nah. I feel like he's very smarmy and I think that he's very entitled. No, I... And I think it's more... I think that's, you know, just a choice of the actor. I, like, think, I think so, too. I don't trust this guy.
0: Yeah. And yeah. I
1: don't know if this is an ongoing thing or what. Right, right. I trust him less than Peglet. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he says that he's a Yorkshireman, and this is where he belongs. It's like, oh, uh, then where you been at yeah. when your dad was dying and also yeah. not paying rent? Were you
0: at Utree Farm? If not, you were presumably somewhere else in Yorkshire, which is a fairly big county. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so he says that uh, his family has worked this land in partnership with the Crawleys for more than a century, and the partnership line really hits home. Yeah.
0: Lord Grant was like, oh.
1: Partnership? You mean I'm involved? <laughs> yes lord grantham feels that they should be in partnership with all their tenants which is an awfully socialistic type of view to take drew asks then will you let me come home Ugh, i hate this i know lord grantham says he'll see what he can do drew says he'll be at the farm uh which you don't own <laughs> so he starts to leave but then lord grantham stops him and he says that he would prefer to report that drew will pay all the arrears and he will lend him the difference even though it will be at least 50 pounds like i don't understand how this helps anyone
0: well, it doesn't. It doesn't help the. I mean, it doesn't help the estate per se. But mm-hmm. it's the the difference is that it's coming out of Lord Grantham's sort of personal money, and Mary oh, and Tom okay. don't have to know about it. I see. Okay,
1: that makes some sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Drew says that Lord Grantham won't regret it, and Lord Grantham says that he doesn't think he will either, because if there's one thing he's learned, it's that he's aces at financial decision making. <laughs>
0: That's right. It's been proven again and again. <laughs>
1: My memento disease is acting up again.
0: (laughs) Remember all that money I made in the railroad game? (laughs) Lord Sammy Jenkins for you, sir.
1: (laughs) Splendid. (laughs) Send him it. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie Ann Moss, what are you doing here?
0: Uh, Carson stops in Hughes' parlor to ask if she thinks that young Alfred might really pass this test, and she says that judging by Patmore's reports, it is likely that he will pass it. This has given Carson an idea. They will soon be short of footmen, and Moseley is short of a reason for continuing to be on this show. So, <laughs> um,
1: Why don't they just do a web series, The Adventures of Moseley and Young Peglet? <laughs> They can go around getting into wacky adventures <laughs> Right
0: Molesley screws things up and then Peglet gets him out of it
1: Yeah, or like set something on fire <laughs> Right I don't know what he does Yeah, but
0: we, we don't know his deal yet
1: They could graft onto each other and be the world's <laughs> ugliest Siamese twins
0: <laughs> They could do the freak show circuit
1: <laughs> Oh man Downton freak show, bring it on
0: That would be more dignified than what Molesley has been doing this season That's a really good point Anyway, uh, Hughes wonders if Molesley would agree to taking a footman's position, and Carson's like, <Staatanging some noise> of course he would. Um, and he knows that he's right, so whatever.
1: Ugh, this is so stupid. Also... I love how they're all like making predictions about Alfred passing this test and like do you know the chef who's judging it personally right. have you all or ever been to the Ritz
0: the level of competition like <sighs> how people are involved what's their background this yeah. is
1: like when somebody from like you know a small town like when gets on like top chef <laughs> for like a minute and then they just spend the whole episode crying and get sent home unceremoniously yeah
0: or uh, I mean really it seems more like American Idol to me yeah that's true yeah
1: <laughs> the rank amateurism of it <laughs> in the main dining room because isabel and the dowager counters are there now so i guess right. that makes sense yeah, yeah uh mary says that lord grantham might have consulted them before giving drew a free farm <laughs> right which uh we <laughs> heartily agree with lord grantham says he only said that they'd think about it but mary says it sounds as if he's come to a decision uh lord grantham says if we don't respect our past we'll find it harder to build our future
0: and that, that line it just i was like that Julian Fellows just gave himself the day off after he came up with that. He's like, that's the best thing I've ever written.
1: <laughs> Come, Isis. <laughs> Except he doesn't actually have a dog. No. <laughs> he, just, he just says that. He walks around like, with one of those invisible dog leashes <laughs> and imagines its butt in front of him. <laughs> the Dowager Countess asks where Lord Grantham read that and he says he made it up and he was proud of it. Yes. The Dowager Countess thinks it's too good and they certainly don't want a poet in the family. Uh, or an Irish journalist. Like, think how awful that would be. Right. It would be a real comedown for them. Isabel asks if it would be so bad to have a poet. But the Dowager Countess says the only poet peer she is familiar with is Lord Byron. And we all know how that went.
0: Yeah. Which annoyed me the first time I heard it because I was like, uh, Lord Tennyson england's poet laureate during most of the dowager's lifetime but then i realized that she means a hereditary peer yeah and tennyson was just ennobled for his poetry you mean
1: some jumped up scribbler
0: right precisely
1: (laughs) well speaking of things that are jumped up (laughs) it's time for our other recurring segment with our very favorite ironic byronic guy (laughs) hey it's tom repeats history
0: okay uh, I'm also stretching it a little bit as what I'm discussing today has nothing to do with the current time period that we're in, but Byron was mentioned. and Be By- careful.
1: They're going to start wanting Jane Austen again.
0: Ah, yikes. No. <laughs> Find a different podcast. <laughs> they already have. <laughs> <laughs> They've moved on. Yeah, we're their Wickham of podcasts.
1: <laughs> you heard it here first, the Wickham of
0: podcasts. <laughs> That's right. I'll take it. But yeah, and Byron was just ridiculously fascinating, which I sort of had an idea of, but when I went into looking into it, I mean, we could literally do an hour-long podcast just about the wacky adventures <laughs> of Lord Byron.
1: And that's not even getting into Arcadia.
0: Right. So, Which he's not actually in. I, I know, but it's a very telling fine
1: people play. i in case they haven't seen
0: it. Yeah, th- that they should. You should all go see Arcadia.
1: I can't believe they haven't made that into a movie yet. Yeah. It's a bit odd. It would be like when they tried to adapt Possession, because that didn't go well at all. Yeah, that's true. Those split time periods, are really hard to pull off.
0: Yeah, indeed.
1: Even with, uh, what's her name, who played Elizabeth Bennet? Jennifer Ailey.
0: Right, right, yeah. So, Lord Byron was the son of Mad Jack Byron, and the grandson (laughs) of Foul Weather Jack Byron. So... So, a really even-keel family. (laughs) Right. Look... I mean, and everybody, like, all the branches of the Byron family were nuts. (laughs) Um, Mad Jack ran off with a married heiress, uh, ran off with her to France, uh, and eventually she got married. She bolted? She did bolt. And she eventually divorced and and married him, had a few daughters, uh, but then died uh, his, he then, at that point Because he was, he I believe Gambling, but just in general sp- uh, Spent all his money as soon as he got it um, And so once he lost The 4000 a year income That his first wife had had He needed to marry another rich person Real quick And he found Catherine Gordon Who was a wealthy heiress And actually descended uh, directly from James I of Scotland Ooh. Yeah um and she had a lot of money she uh he actually had to take her name when they got married because she was basically the last of the gordon line and they didn't want the name to die out mm-hmm. so he became uh mad jack byron gordon <laughs> um and got married and spent all of her money and i mean all of it sold her castle like, like how does this even happen completely cleaned her how out well, you know, once 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 the man gets married, he owns everything. Ew. I know gross. But yeah. Uh so that happened. And and they had Lord Byron. Um and when he was two, they moved to Aberdeen because they had <laughs> not much to live on at that point. And at this point, the his parents hated each other. They could not live in the same house.
1: Uh, well, that's generally what happens when somebody sells a castle without asking,
0: right? And neither of them seemed to be at all like good, likable people mm-hmm. in any way. I mean, <laughs> yes, he spent all her money, but she also seems to have been terrible in her own ways. Um, they tried living on different houses on the same street for a while to see if they could make that work, but eventually, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just like it that they gave it the old <laughs> right. Rivera <Carlo> try. <laughs> Right. try. Uh,
0: but it didn't work, and, and Mad Jack went off to live with his sister in France uh, and, and did for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when Byron was pretty young at that point. So Catherine and Lord Byron, what even was his name? Like, I don't know what his given name was. Uh, All I can think about is
1: Percy Shelley for some reason, right, and I'm exactly, pretty sure that's not it.
0: Right. Though he'll be coming into this later. Um, but they both. Oh, right,
1: because they were dicks! Anyway.
0: They were both mother and child had tempers mm-hmm. that were the talk of the neighborhood, like they could be heard. <laughs> Um, where it was more specifically the mother could be heard, he would always be like completely silent in his during one of his silent rages. He bit through a china saucer um so this is what this is not a good upbringing for oh this my kid God. yeah,
1: how was that even an option yeah i I bit through a china saucer he did it like either he was real mad or that was some fine china
0: right. When he was 10 years old, he inherited the title of uh, Lord Lord Byron, Baron Byron. Oh, God. Yeah. This is not going to go well. No. and Nothing oh.
1: worse than a 10-year-old noble.
0: Yeah. And again, this is where I could go on a whole other tangent here about the fifth Lord of Byron and all the horrors that he did. But the, the key is that he hated his children so much that he tried to like sell all the family properties so that none of it would pass to them, including illegally selling their uh, manor house, which he wasn't oh my allowed God. to. And he let the the they had a, a manor house and a something abbey, like New it wasn't Newgate, but it was something like that Abbey. New mm-hmm. Heath maybe. Uh and he let it completely fall into ruin because he hated his children joke was on him, his children eventually died, and so that's why the title passed to Lord Byron wow. instead of his nephew. So yeah, so he went off to live near this ruined abbey, which is partly, you know, a lot of his sort of gothicness was inspired by the ruined abbey that he grew mm-hmm. up near. Um, he had a nurse who would give him religion lessons, beat him during them, and then send him off into a dark room. Uh, to think about it. So that also <laughs> probably. <laughs> Did she at least give him a stack of China saucers? <laughs> I, I, it was not recorded. He wrote his first poem at the age of 12. It was a love poem to his cousin. Well, um, that's pretty standard. Yeah, it, uh, set a bit of a pattern.
1: <laughs>
0: um. Yeah, and he, he was, uh, very precocious in the uh sexual arts in the sexual arts yes uh somewhat disturbingly uh, he went to harrow and Cam- cambridge for his education uh and at the age of 18 he had his first published work called fugitive pieces although shortly after he published it he recalled and burned it as many of the poems were rather racy and seemed to injure his reputation uh, he then- Which was really sterling up to that point. <laughs> right. Well, nobody knew much about him yet. Uh, he published Hours of Idleness, that was his next work. Uh, it got a very savage review, which prompted him to write a, uh, satirical retort uh, about his critics that, uh, got them so mad, and it was about the whole profession of criticism mm-hmm. in general, that he was challenged to several duels. <laughs> Although in later years it was said that it became a point of honor to be the subject of one of his attacks in that way, once he was a big, big uh-huh. shot. He then wrote "Child Herald." That was his big breakout hit. Like it was hugely popular. He didn't think much of it, but it struck a chord, and that that really made his name. He was he was a big deal from then on. He went on the grand tour from 1809 to 1811, as you know, young nobility did. Although, since at the time most of Europe was under Napoleon's, you know, iron fist, he didn't. Uh, he took a less traditional tour that was mainly centered around the Mediterranean and the Eastern Mediterranean. Although there was some
1: with those filthy Italians.
0: Yes. And according to uh, letters that some of his, compa- his his peers wrote at the time, they seem to think that he went there partly in the hopes of having some homosexual experiences. Ooh. He, he very much was bisexual, although he, you know, never really admitted it. So
1: he was a real Lord Byron? <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yes, he was.
1: I'm really sorry. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. But <laughs> oh my God, how could you not?
0: Right. Um, you know, it's difficult to tell exactly, you know, there's, so, he had a lot of relationships that may or may not have been homosexual because it was actually the impression I got was that it was fairly recently that it became like, it had always been, you know, wrong. Everybody had always hated, mm-hmm. you know, gay sex, but I feel like it had, it had sort of become a much more, uh,
1: demonized, yeah,
0: demonized or like. Yeah, somehow it was It more, became
1: more of a focus.
0: Yeah. Like I when think, like
1: when they were passing like DOMA and stuff and like right, Don't Ask right. them to tell, Yeah kind of thing. There was
0: there was a particular time. Just at society decided all yeah. of a
1: sudden that this was like the worst thing.
0: Yeah. He had again one of these you know, intimate relationships in Athens with a fourteen year old boy who was teaching him Italian. And uh, uh, also fell madly in love with a twelve year old girl. Ew. And reportedly, although this was very poorly sourced, reportedly offered her parents 500 pounds for her to go off with him.
1: That's not much. Uh, I mean, even, like, adjusted for... Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, Look, he... What a horrible person.
0: A very horrible person. He's like the Woody
1: Allen of his day. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'll say he was clearly you know, both genetics and environment fucked him mm-hmm. up clearly. Uh he had just as much trouble holding on to money as any of his other relations, although at by this point he had so much coming in with his poetry that right. he was, you know, able to pretty much generally keep afloat. Uh, so when he came back from the Grand Tour, at this this was the height of his popularity. He was wildly popular, and, you know, it was said that all he had to do was toss his handkerchief at any woman in England, and he could, you know, bang her.
1: That is so weird. I haven't yeah. even read any of his poems, I don't think. Yeah,
0: but he was, I mean, he was just, you know, I don't know, Brad Pitt or whatever, you know, he was... Justin Bieber? Just, Justin Bieber, <laughs> sure. Yeah, like Justin Bieber well, for romance. Well,
1: no, and, and Fant terrible kind of thing
0: yeah yeah and uh so he had just an incredible amount of sex uh including with a uh, caroline lamb who was married to uh, a very high up person who was later prime minister mm-hmm. uh, which was far like even by his standards was way too open and was caused quite a scandal uh but also she was way more into him than he was into her and yeah like that's totally after the, he broke it off totally like stalked him yeah that's and, gross yeah it was it was troubling boy
1: it must have been interesting for him to be the less crazy one for a <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and he he seems to have tried to he seems to have gotten sick of this whole thing and, and he tried to get away with it by uh marrying a very like you know, buttoned-down conservative Mm -hmm. woman, Annabella Milbank. But that was just a disaster. Like, he... even Like, during the marriage ceremony, he was seen to be, you know, trembling like a leaf. Wow. And afterwards, as he uh, escorted to the car, he said, this way, Miss Milbank. Uh Yeah, so it was, like, it was doomed from before the start. Um was
1: his intention that he wanted to be, like, 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 monogamous at that point? Or was he just hoping that, like, she... He, My I think osmosis exert some influence on him? I
0: think that was sort of his feeling, that he wanted to find a way to a normal life, and he just thought that somehow this would do it. But
1: Like a lot of people
0: still yeah, today? Yeah. Uh, but it did not work. They, they were together for about three years, and they had uh, one child who was Ada Lovelace
1: right yes oh god yeah oh my god right yeah which incidentally cousins if you're interested <laughs> uh my humor journal hobo mm-hmm. uh we actually have an advice column <laughs> in uh i believe it was our i don't remember which issue it is but uh ada lovelace is our advice columnist
0: in one <laughs> <issue>. <laughs> yeah yeah who again a, a whole, a whole story there as well. Um, but after they had Ada, they separated, mm-hmm. um, you know, pretty permanently. And at that point, rumors were spreading, uh, about his sodomy, which wasn't just the fact that he was having sex with men, but that he was...
1: Buggering women as bu- well?
0: Inc- his wife, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um... If you're
1: gonna bugger someone.
0: Well, yeah, but it wasn't... Shouldn't
1: it be your wife?
0: Uh, no, you shouldn't bugger anyone. Really? That was, I mean, it's a, you know, it was against the it law. say
1: that in the Bible anywhere? Uh, <laughs> <'cause>, cousins <laughs> look
0: kelly do you
1: read the bible
0: <laughs> god made adam and eve not adam and eve's butthole
1: <laughs> uh god didn't make that also <laughs> if we're gonna go there
0: that's that's fair uh but in any case that was uh a rumor going around and there was also a rumor that may or may not have been true that he was having a relationship with his half-sister no. yeah who they had not really known each other um as children, but, but it's still ugh. Yeah, he certainly had a close relationship with her, and it certainly may not have been that. Mm-hmm. That's nobody knows for sure. And that that rumor was partially spread by Caroline Lamb. Crazy. So in any case, he had to get out of England. He really
1: was living La Vida Loca. He
0: he was. Uh, so he left and uh, met up with the Shelleys in Switzerland. And while he was there, that was the. Um, the I'm sorry. It's all right.
1: Oh, Shelleys, continue. Yeah.
0: That was the famous weekend in which Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, right. and he wrote uh, he wrote a, a part of a vampire piece that one of the other writers there kind of uh, fleshed out into the vampire. Mm-hmm. That was the the founder of that genre. They all went, then went down to Venice, uh, lived there for a while. Uh, he uh, moved to Ravenna with uh, Teresa Guccioli, a married aristocrat that he was having an affair with. Shelley died during this time in a boating accident, and he attended his funeral, Is of that course. A no, <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, which was a, a cremation on the beach uh, in Italy. And uh, apparently made jokes all through the cremation, then afterwards said that he felt like a swim and swam out into the ocean and then vomited. Um, <gasps> so he was drunk? <laughs> uh, who can say? Um, and in 1823, he, uh, again, really looking for meaning in his life. And he he did, and this is something I didn't get into because it's not as scandalous, but he really had an affinity for the... Culture of the whole region around the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very into the Armenian culture and language. Uh, he translated things into Armenian. And he loved it mm-hmm. um, and all sorts of things like that. So at any point, it, I
1: wonder if the Kardashians are Byron fans.
0: It's hard to say, um, but at this point,
1: it's very Kanye Westian.
0: Yeah, so he was he was looking for something to do at this point that that would be more meaningful, and so he joined the Greek War of Independence that was going on at the time against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he spent four thousand pounds uh, helping refit their navy, uh, and went over there to to join in himself. Not, you know, he didn't have any military, mm-hmm. you know, ability or whatever. Yeah,
1: but if you get four thousand pounds, like, well, you can you can get yeah. some licks in. <laughs> That's
0: right. But uh, while he was there, he died of an illness that it is not. They're not quite sure, apparently, what it was, and it may have been a non-fatal illness that he was then bled for, and may have gotten sepsis from being bled for it gotcha that may be what killed him but in any case he died at uh, age 36
1: woof yeah like wow
0: yeah and again i cannot tell you how much more there is like i (laughs) was just stunned
1: for more information on lord byron visit your local library
0: indeed there are many full-length biographies
1: well thank you tom that was fascinating (laughs) i think i will be picking one of those up yeah that sounds quite salacious yeah wow lord byron yeah so I guess uh, the Dowager Countess was into some salty business when she was younger, <laughs> or at least in observing it.
0: Yeah. All, every, I mean, you know, everybody yeah. knew what was going on.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, be that as it may, then I do not think that Lord Crantham is in any danger <laughs> of following in Lord Byron's footsteps. Indeed. So, still at dinner, right? uh, which we interrupted for some reason, (laughs) Lord Grantham says that it's only fair to let Drew stay on since he wants to repay his debt, and he likes how he talked about partnership. We know. (laughs) Right. Isabel likes it as well, and the Dowager Countess calls her the Queen of the Rebels (laughs) and thanks her for that. It's
0: not very, I don't know, she's not very, like, Boudicia-like to me. Yeah,
1: well, also, like, Rebels generally aren't into the monarchy.
0: Right. That's generally why they're
1: rebels. <laughs> Mary thinks that Drew has no right to, you know, kind of renege on this whole thing, this mm-hmm. eviction notice. But right. But McGee thinks he has a moral right. And Branson, even though he wants that farm.
0: Yes, because he says it's right in the middle of all their land, mm-hmm. and so it's like a hole in their yeah. their plans.
1: Uh, but he says he's on the farmer's side because he suddenly remembered that he was a socialist
0: before. Right. I feel like between last episode and this one, <laughs> Lord Grantham just went back and you watched... Julian yeah. Fellows. <laughs> right julian fellows went back and watched all the previous episodes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah branson's a socialist and oh Ma- mary and edith hate each other yeah. i totally forgot <laughs> this is great stuff
1: <laughs> you know i'm not even gonna rewrite the episodes before this I mean, <laughs> think it, it holds up uh so lord grantham says that they'll talk it over for a day or two and then mary can decide you know what to tell drew okay. basically yeah
0: Anna is down in the boot room. Is she
1: ever not in the boot room?
0: Not in this episode, no. (laughs) Well, she seems to be doing the same thing to the same shoe throughout this episode.
1: So she's just pretending to work.
0: Yeah, or she's got some sort of, like, OCD, post-traumatic thing going on. Bates comes in with his own boot business uh, and says that it is strange standing next to her in silence uh, because he loves her and he thinks that they should be able to talk about what's going on. But Anna won't. She just says that she doesn't even respond really. She just says, I'm going into Ripon. If anybody asks, I'll be back before the gong.
1: It's uh Yeah. Like these scenes are like totally heartbreaking. Yeah. Even though I kind of don't think that Brendan Coyle is up to the emotional involvement that some of them require. Yeah. But it's just awful. And I mean, it is. you know, we're very lucky because this isn't, you know, never happened to us that right. one of us had a problem that we couldn't talk to the other one about. Yeah. And, you but- know, spoiler alert we kind of think that's pretty vital to a marriage right. but you know y'all may be different we don't know your lives yeah but god it's it's still
0: yeah terrible still feel for him
1: so baxter is fixing uh mrs patmore's apron in the servants hall and uh mrs patmore says she gets dizzy just watching <laughs> but that the apron uh when it's done is better than when she bought it which i doubt <laughs> right i doubt it had a seam where there's no seam <laughs> And she thanks Baxter. Uh, Thomas comes in to say that McGee's coming down, but then tells Baxter that Mrs. Patmore is roped to the chariot of her weird campaign to get everyone to like her. Which, right. again, That's- isn't this just what normal people do to make <laughs> friends? Right. Like, Thomas, I'm beginning to see why maybe you don't... <laughs> At any rate, Baxter then says she's grateful for the job, and they both know why. Right. Want
0: to want to fill us in here? So curious. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Because you don't look like the type to have done anything.
0: Really, I I don't even have a theory. Well, and it's
1: like if there's some big thing, how did you avoid like the references
0: and that kind of thing? But you know.
1: At any rate, she says she wants to know his scheme. So I guess she doesn't know the full extent of what's going on either.
0: Wouldn't you think that at this point? McGee would be like very like thorough about the references given the last time she winged it. I
1: think if we've learned anything <laughs> throughout our tenure as recappers of Downton Abbey is that no one ever learns their <laughs> lesson. That is true. Thomas has, he does not seem to have any specific scheme in mind, just general spying.
0: Right. He's just like, oh, I just want to know what's going on.
1: And Baxter wants to know if the other ladies' maids would spy for him. He said, Miss O'Brien did until they fell out. And then Baxter asks if Mrs. Bates is an enemy. She's the only one who calls Anna Mrs. Bates. Right. And I guess it is a familiarity thing. But they're also stringent about what to call Thomas. Yeah. It's very
0: weird. Yeah, it is.
1: At any rate, Thomas says Anna's not an enemy, but she's incorruptible, so we have nothing in common, which is delightful. Yes. Uh, Baxter says she hasn't had four words out of Anna since she arrived. Thomas is like, listen, spy. Right. You're here to spy, spy.
0: Yeah. Stop speculating about people.
1: Start spying. That's right. Hard facts.
0: Where's your magnifying glass? Is that part of spying? I'd assume. Yeah.
1: I don't know. Maybe like a telescope?
0: Mm, that's more like yeah. it. Yeah. Binoculars. Like Jimmy Stewart.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So as Thomas leaves after this, he passes Pat Moore and McGee, who has come down and they're in the hallway. Uh, and Pat Moore, unsurprisingly, not thrilled by the idea of a refrigerator, but McGee explains that it's more efficient than an ice box and they won't need ice delivered. And I know this
1: was odd because Pat Moore is like, but we'll still have the newspapers delivered and and the groceries and all sorts, and I'm like, Yes. Yeah, but our- none of those things is ice. Right. And none of those things can be replaced by a refrigerator. <laughs> right. Like Those are all... The
0: refrigerator cannot print out the daily newspaper.
1: What? Why has no one invented? (laughs) Well, I guess it's kind of too late now.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hey, print industry. I've solved everything. (laughs) That's right. Newspapers are back. I feel like
1: this is such like a late night infomercial. (laughs) You know, like... Like,
0: uh, news freezer. (laughs) Print box! <laughs> Finally, a newspaper that's when I wanted and ice cold! <laughs> <laughs> but until that's invented, uh, McGee asks Patmore if there's any aspect of the modern age that she can accept without resistance. And Patmore <laughs> kind of looks around a little bit and says that she wouldn't mind getting rid of her corset.
1: We almost gave her the uh gibson girl <laughs> just for her line reading on this it's yeah. so great yeah and i wanted to be like you know a lot of people are getting rid of them like, yeah they could
0: well i think she i mean i think i mean i would assume sort of the McGee's like great refrigerator no, no corset, corset done we got this gladly you yeah. got it
1: you got it lady She's
0: like i never see you i don't care what you wear <laughs>
1: In the Dower Garden, the Dowager Countess is telling Peglet to do everything Maylee tells him. Yes. He says he will. Isabel is there and says that John, I guess that's Peglet, right. is keen to learn. And Peglet agrees that he is keen to learn. Yeah. He is just repeating things that rich people are saying to him at this point. <laughs> right. The Dowager Countess tells him that he owes his place to Isabel and that wars have been waged with less fervor than uh, Isabel has pressed for this. Isabel right. hopes that they win this one. And then as they walk off, Isabel tells the Dowager Countess that sh- the Dowager Countess cares about these things as much as Isabel does, but the Dowager Countess can't even get through this without laughing and says, Nobody cares about anything as much as you do. And there's straight up like just five seconds of Maggie Smith just laughing at her own joke. <laughs> That's right. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: Also, we see uh, Maely, like well in the background of and this. And he's
1: like, I bloody well did have me own candidate.
0: <laughs> That's right. He does not seem excited at all.
1: I would not be excited about Peglet yeah. with his lack of backstory. <laughs> That's right. And cause... his dumb, stupid face. Yeah.
0: Because as, as they're walking off, Peg goes up to Maile and melee hands him like, this big stick. <laughs> it's like, here. Here's the stick. Poke all of the flowers. <laughs> if any of them fall off, uh, collect them.
1: <laughs> Don't bother me. <laughs>
0: In the kitchen, Ivy and Pat Moore are speculating that Alfred will do well at this test. And Daisy is, you know, moody because she knows he'll do well and then he'll leave. Good! Right. Uh, Pat Moore says that she should be glad for him. So the same conversation as the last five times. <laughs> um, Jimmy Kent pops in to ask what it was that Mcgee wanted. And Pat Moore says, more gadgets to waste their money and my time. But nothing can stop her dragging us into the new age.
1: Uh... If you'd been listening, Mrs. Patmore, you would have heard that this is actually going to save you both time and money. Yes. So, shut the F up. <laughs> right. We see Edith's face uh, through the window of a moving car in London. Uh, she says, this is it. And the cab pulls up at Dr. T. Goldman's office.
0: Dun-dun-dun. Duh.
1: Well, we were spared one pregnancy storyline, right. presumably for another. Oh,
0: come because on, because no
1: woman ever goes to a doctor in Eng- or in London on this show unless she's knocked up or having difficulty conceiving.
0: She could have syphilis. That would be way
1: more interesting, <laughs> right? But I do not think they're going to go that no, far. I
0: don't either. Ah,
1: uh, did Lord Byron get any kind of horrible uh, STDs?
0: Uh, You'd think he would have had to. You would think he would have had to, but not th- not that I read about. Uh, Bummer. Yeah. Well, I mean, he died at 36. That's like, true. It might have still been developing. <laughs> a haughty chef guy is pacing around the uh, exam room where Alfred and his competitors are all standing at attention. And they
1: all look like prats.
0: Yeah. Well, they're all, they all have to wear this really dumb looking hat. Yeah. But um, I mean, that's
1: actually still standard today, I think, that if you're training in a kitchen, like, that's your, like hat that you have to wear
0: i mean i i think you must be right except i don't know why it has never looked that bad to me if i've seen it before uh
1: because alfred
0: (laughs) well that's a good point uh anyway this haughty guy is arsene avignon sous chef at the ritz and he says they will be making four dishes and then asks two random trivia questions about vichyssoise and then it's like, okay, you all have your instructions. Oh, and he asked them both to Alfred, and he cannot answer either one. And then he says, okay, you've all got your instructions. Go ahead. I was like, were those two yeah, random questions? Yeah, was that part of the
1: quiz? That like, you
0: only asked one person part of this? Like, It's very weird. It's like, it is a tradition in France that we always ask the tallest candidate two questions. <laughs> it brings us bon chance. <laughs>
1: In the library, Carson announces Mr. Napier to Mary.
0: What? What? Mary is super excited. He really did go back and watch the old episode. I know.
1: <laughs> he's like, I wonder if this chap's got any paying work. <laughs> so Napier comes in and uh, tells Mary that he's got some work on a government thing, which has taken him to Yorkshire. He was in Thursk again, in Russia, <laughs> when he suddenly thought, why not take a chance? mary is seriously like losing her shit we have not seen her this happy
0: in ages yeah like ever like this she i mean she can barely control herself
1: and so she rings for tea and says she'll tell her parents and then napier says while they're still alone that he's been thinking about her since the whole ghastly business which okay and there has been some discussion uh one of the cousins wrote into us and had a bit of a twitter argument with tom lorenzo on uh about this right so and tom's interpretation also seems to be that he's talking about pamuk right where was... i thought he was talking about matthew since i found it hard to believe that they would have gone 10 years without seeing each other but then watching it again when she was that excited to see him maybe they haven't seen each other in maybe years.
0: they haven't and i mean it was to me i leapt to that just because that's what napier was associated mm-hmm. with you know that was when we saw him and you know i do also feel like That whole ghastly business is a bit of an odd way to talk about the sudden death of your husband.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Um, but generally he could just be referring to the whole last ten years.
1: Yeah, they were pretty bad.
0: There was that whole world war. Um, (laughs) so yeah. People
1: kept dying. Mm hmm. Lavinia. (laughs)
0: Right. Fake Patrick. (laughs) oh my god that was a ghastly business yeah
1: anyway (laughs) Mary's glad uh, that he's there and Napier says it's lovely to see Mary looking so lovely Mm -hmm. so uh, and this was not publicized he was not put in the ring as one of these like suitors for her
0: right so I
1: don't feel like this is going to go anywhere like most plots on this show (laughs) right
0: I mean that's always a safe bet but at the same time like he seems to be into her and she was and he's
1: way more attractive than I remember him being maybe it's just because he was next to Miss. Mr. Pamuk all the time. Before. That's true. And Mr. Pamuk was smoking. He was.
0: down in the kitchen. Jimmy Kent comes in, tells Ivy that uh, Mary wants tea for four, and Ivy just completely ignores him. And he's like, uh, "Tea for four? Hello, do your job, right?" And Ivy says that it's not right for Jimmy Kent to speak against Alfred. Which Jimmy can't respond I'm so bored. Right. Which he then responds by making fun of Alfred some more.
1: (laughs) Uh, But he really knows how to keep a girl interested.
0: Right. Making fun of him specifically for never having been to London. When Ivy's like, "Uh, you know, I've also never been to London, as you well know, Mm -hmm. given that I've never even been to a theater. Yeah. And she says that Alfred uh, going to London uh, and taking this task proves that he has ambition and she admires that. Jimmy Kent says that's good as he has plenty of ambition where she's concerned and she says, "Oh, don't be soft."
1: <laughs> I hate this. Yeah. I hope they both spontaneously combust and get exiled to Tree Farm. <laughs> Back in the Man, this whole episodes in the damn library. Yeah, yeah. Uh Lord Grantham is there now uh asking what Napier's working on. He says it's to do with the rural economy. Very hush hush. And Mary says not to tell them if it's a secret, but Napier says it isn't, not like that.
0: Right. So what?
1: I don't know. Like come on. Like check. I just
0: imagine his superior being like, Now listen, this is very hush hush, so don't tell anyone unless you feel like telling someone. <laughs>
1: That's kind of how I approach every secret. So, oh my God, do not tell me a secret, anyone. He says that uh, landed estates are in difficulty. And the department wants to assess them to see if they're likely to survive. Like, this feels like taking the pulse of a corpse, like digging the body up and then being like, is there anything we can do to save it? At any rate, McGee asks if they are likely to survive and he says some of them Lord Grantham feels that it sounds interesting Napier says that it is but it's also very depressing (laughs) right McGee asks which places he's studying uh, and he can't say but they've earmarked ones in serious trouble and Downton's not among them but Mary uh, very savvy yeah Mary's great she says that they'd still love his opinion about how they're doing but Lord Grantham says they don't want to add to his labors or uh, allow him to see how poorly (laughs) Lord Grantham has been managing things Mary asks where Napier's staying, and he mentions a hotel, but Mary insists that he must stay with them. He says he'll have his boss with him, a Charles Blake, who Lord Grantham hasn't heard of, so, you know, thumbs up. And McGee says that both of them must stay, and Mary agrees. Thank God, I'm so sick of that small dining room.
0: (laughs) Haughty chef guy tastes Alfred's dish and says that he's done quite well, and Alfred says that he knows he can do better if he gets a chance. I feel like
1: Alfred took a very poor tack. Yeah, I didn't like the way that he phrased this. Like, I understand what he was trying to say, but I'm like, don't say that. Like, right. don't apologize but for yourself. But again,
0: we see people take poor t- tax on Top Chef all the time. It's true. Um, and in life. <laughs> yeah. Chef Guy observes that Alfred has been a footman rather than working in a restaurant. And Alfred says that's true. And the, he asks, the chef asks if that has made him unhappy. Alfred says that he won't say that, but he wants to do with more... He wants to do more with his life. The chef guy says they have difficult decisions ahead, but they won't keep him waiting.
1: Uh, unless his letter gets lost in the mail
0: <laughs> Right. <laughs> so come back after this commercial break.
1: Bates comes into Mrs. Hughes's parlor, and he thanks her for letting him disturb her afternoon. So he sits down, and he says he believes that she can help him. She says she doubts that, but Bates knows that she can and says that he overheard her and Anna talking about this problem. Right. Mrs. Hughes says that doesn't mean... But Bates interrupts her and says that it does. She knows what's up and thinks that Anna should have told him. She's like, I, you know, it's not my thing. She says it's not her place to tell him at this point. But Bates says that in that case, he can't stay at Downton. He says he's been happier than he has any right to be. We agree. (laughs) But that only makes the situation harder. And Mrs. Hughes says she can imagine. But Bates says and as much as it pains me to say can you and she can't yeah Yeah. she can't (laughs) if she can she'll know why he has to leave his wife no longer loves him his sight is torture to her which is torture to him and so if Hughes doesn't fess up he will resign immediately and be gone before Anna gets back which like don't be a dick and not give your two weeks a-hole
0: well you know I know this is how threats
1: work (laughs) Uh, Mrs. Hughes says nothing and Bates gets up to leave, but then Mrs. Hughes calls him back, asks where Anna is. He says she's in Ripon, city of a thousand rape flashbacks. <laughs> uh, more like Rapin.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Yeah, that, that, that was a terrible thing to say. I apologize. Especially, Especially to the city of Ripon.
1: Well, yeah, look, you're great, Rippin. They tweeted at us. Oh, nice. Yeah. One of the cousins uh was tweeting pictures of various places because she lives in Ripon. Right, right. And uh, Ripon was telling us about the workhouse that is now a historical site. So. Excellent. Anyway. Thanks, Rippin. We love you. Yes. I'm sorry about what I just said. <laughs> Hughes tells Mr. Bates that he's wrong and Anna loves her very, very much. And coming home to find him gone would basically finish her off. And so she says she'll tell Bates what happened and ask for the mercy of God. I think God will be fine with it.
0: Yeah, he, he understands. Yeah.
1: So Bates closes the door. Yeah. Because God forbid that we see anyone have a conversation. <laughs> uh,
0: the Dowager Countess enters her drawing room or study or something, surprising Paglet who is there. Uh, he says that he, is sorry, he was told she wouldn't be in before seven. Uh, he's, he's watering some plants, is what he's doing there. And she says that she wouldn't have been, but she left a letter on her desk. She goes to her desk and looks around for a bit, apparently missing something that should be there, and asks Peglet if anybody else has been in the room. He says he doesn't know. The dowager Countess says, no, why would you?
1: Right? You're just a stupid Peglet.
0: <laughs> right. And walks out. And he stands there mouth agape as he does pretty much the whole episode
1: yeah he really isn't a gape type guy yeah back in hughes's parlor uh she's finished telling bates what happened off screen bates asks when it happened and wants to know if it was the last night of the house party which like duh right like anyway uh, i hate this I know. mrs hughes says yes and then bates correctly identifies green right. as the assailant but mrs hughes says that it wasn't she doesn't believe he even left the concert and bates asks if she swears it mrs hughes is trying to sort of waffle right. out of this which i think is more like come on like if you're gonna lie fucking lie yeah she asks why she should and bates says she has to mrs hughes insists that it was an outsider who broke in and waited for anna below stairs which is a very poor story like right i understand that i she, mean
0: it had it had to be somebody that bates yeah. would not be able to track down so i know she anyway had limited options there
1: Mr. Bates asks her to swear and Mrs. Hughes says she will make him feel better. So she swears. He's like, on your mother's life. And she's like, my mother is dead. And he's like, on her grave then. And I'm like, you know that like dead people don't have magic powers, right? <laughs> she was
0: cremated. Uh,
1: yeah. she's on like, ashes s-
0: <laughs> then. We scattered the ashes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she said she swears. Bates says he'll wait to find out who the guy is and Mrs. Hughes says that, she, that he's welcome to try but she doesn't know what he has to go on bates just kind of thinks for a second and then says he'll leave mrs Hughes says he's welcome to hang out in her parlor since he's had a shock bates says no he'll go thank you but in the hallway he stands for for a minute and like begins to cry and the shot is composed really weird yeah his head is right next to these like coat hooks right yeah and i just again brendan Coyle, not good with the emotions yeah
0: it's unfortunate in the upstairs hallway, Lord Grantham runs into Edith. Uh London was fine, and she hears that Napier had stopped by and is sorry that she missed him, and asks if he is still in pursuit of Mary. Lord Grantham says that he did not ask.
1: Uh Also, it's been ten years. Like, Jesus.
0: Uh That said, there's some indication that he is. That is true. So, I know.
1: It's just, it's really odd to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll see where it goes, but it's just so bizarre. Right. But I after agree- ten years, anyway... Maybe he's found out that Downton is one of the least poorly managed (laughs) estates in Britain. (laughs) And he wants to get his hands on some of that sweet, sweet yew
0: tree farm. Possibly. Is Napier still after him? I was just watching the first season. I remembered.
1: (laughs) Papa, (laughs) don't you remember how Mary's vagina killed that charming Turkish diplomat? I say.
0: You know I don't remember things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have memento disease. (laughs) in the library once again (laughs) this is a huge house why are they never not in the library
0: uh you know i have to reset up all the lighting and everything
1: (laughs) rose asks mcgee if she'll be giving lord grantham a birthday party as previously discussed because she had a good idea for it oh i know what her idea is this just occurred to me oh she's gonna get them to hire jack ross there you go totally good call McGee asks if Rose will give her a hand, and she says that she will, but then Lord Grantham comes in with Edith and Isis, and he asks if they've come to a final decision about Drew. Mary says, I suppose so. Lord Grantham says that Tom's socialism will ensure that he's on board. Boy, there's a use for everything on this show. <laughs> yeah. And he laughs at his own joke. Right. Not as awesomely as the Dowager Countess. No. But Branson says he's been thinking about his socialism quite a lot lately. He's not sure what his beliefs are since the house party, which Lord Grantham doesn't want to hear about. He thinks somebody just said something to upset Branson, and he's like, listen, I've decided you're staying. You're staying. Right. Mcgee and Mary want to know who was rude to him. Branson says that no one was rude. Lord Grantham is wrong, as he is about everything. (laughs) Yes. And he says that he just felt like he was living where he didn't belong. And he just says, welcome to the club. Mary (laughs) awesomely tells her to stop moaning. I mean, look, we're on track here for a good season. I feel we've we've been burned before we have been many times but i i feel like we're building to something interesting here all right uh lord grantham asks if tom would belong in ireland but he says no he's a man without a home now uh, also aren't you a criminal
0: technically <laughs> right like wouldn't he get arrested although i think ireland's independent now which it wasn't before yeah. but like
1: either way you'd think he would have at least some difficulty getting back in
0: right did you not watch that episode when <laughs> back
1: He says he's been thinking about America. He's got family there that are doing quite well and uh, he could make a new start. Mary says he's already made a new start at Downton but Branson's thinking about the world Sibby will grow up in and thinks it might be easier for her to have a clean slate and not be the daughter of an uppity chauffeur. Yes. Which I was like, shit. No. Good
0: point. No.
1: Lord Grantham says not to do anything in a hurry, and Mary says, we wouldn't want to lose you, Tom. Yeah. Which is, you know, and yeah, I mean, I mean w- the few things that this show has done well is really develop this relationship between Mary and Branson. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's not going to leave. Alan well, Leach is like, you know, everybody's friend and stuff. Yeah. They don't want him to not be on the show. Well,
0: he's, he's locked onto the show like a leech.
1: Maybe he can marry Evelyn Napier. <laughs> he's got a woman's name
0: that, well yeah there you go that'd fool everyone <sighs> in the carson cave carson is outraged that molesley is not falling all over himself to accept this footman job uh,
1: which hasn't been vacated yet
0: right um and is just a huge dick about it and molesley leaves and says he'll let carson know when he has an answer i hate this thing
1: yeah it's terrible in mcgee's bedroom mcgee is in her bed while lord grantham is pacing about she says that tom thinks america is a land of opportunity and she agrees she's from there
0: indeed she is
1: lord grantham asks if she wants him to go and she forcefully says that if anyone ever wanted tom to go it was lord grantham lord grantham says well i don't want that now because he is a giant baby yes uh he says he can't lose Sybil's child it's too much to bear have uh, you ever seen Sibyl's what? Child? <laughs> I don't think you have. Uh, McG says it's hard to argue uh, when Tom wants the best for his daughter. Lord Grantham says that once they're grown, George will be like Sibby's brother, and that ought to be worth something. McG says that the one thing that he will never understand about Tom is that he's not a snob. Lord Grantham says he only meant that Sibby would always have a home there and be loved, and McG says that they'll just have to hope Tom agrees. Isn't that going to be true even if she does go to America? Like, Well, I mean,
0: you know, less, uh, you're going to be less yeah. like a brother if you've lived across the ocean for That's your whole true. life. That's true. And uh, we both really liked McGee in this scene. She
1: really, ah, oh, she nailed it. It was yeah. great.
0: Yeah. In the boot room, Bates comes in and asks Anna if she's ever going to finish this shoe thing that she's been doing. Uh, and she, He says that it's nearly midnight. Anna says that someone has to do it, and Bates says it doesn't have to be her, and he puts his hand down and takes the shoe away from her, Uh, and he tells her that he knows what happened that uh, he forced Mrs. Hughes to tell him. Anna says that it wasn't her secret to tell, and Bates says he gave her no choice, and Anna asks what she said, Bates says how it happened, when it happened, and that he had asked if it was green, but that Hughes had sworn that it wasn't, and Anna says that's right, it wasn't him. And so Bates says that, yeah, that it was a man that broke in, a stranger, and Anna agrees again, and Bates says, good, because if it was Green, he's a dead man, which is exactly why nobody wanted to tell you. (laughs) Um, Anna says it wasn't, and that Bates is only saying that because he didn't like Green. Bates agrees that he didn't, and Anna says that that's no excuse, and she wouldn't have sat down to breakfast with him the next morning if it had been him.
1: Which she kind of technically did not. Like, she sat down and then immediately left.
0: Yeah. Luckily... uh,
1: Mr. Bates doesn't remember, apparently, any of Mr. Green's movements. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And they, they can't know who it was. Bates asks why Anna wouldn't tell him, and she says that she knew it would bring him suffering and that she is glad at least that there are no more secrets. She doesn't have to be afraid of being found out anymore because she has been, and her shame has nowhere to hide. Bates says that he doesn't accept there's any shame in this, and Anna says that she's spoiled for him and can never be unspoiled. Bates says she isn't, and he takes her face in his hands and says that she is higher and holier to him for the suffering she has gone through, that she is his wife and he has never been prouder nor loved her more. She says, truly, he says truly, and she leans into him and he holds her while she cries.
1: I feel like I ought to like this better, but I really feel like Bates is like laying it on way too thick.
0: I mean Bates look, Bates is not only a Christ figure, like he is sees himself and everyone else as Christ figures. <laughs> like
1: it's like being Christ Malkovich.
0: <laughs> it is. No, I mean Bates you know So problematic as yeah. a character. Yeah. But, anyway, uh, Anna look, as always, Anna's great.
1: Yeah, and we're glad that at least, you know, she hopefully can start to move on a bit right. at this point. Right. Agreed. The postman rides his bicycle up to the servant's entrance. Carson brings Alfred a letter in the servant's dining room, and Mrs. Patmore asks if he wants her to open it again, but he says no, and he opens it himself. Uh, he didn't get in to the training program at the Ritz. It says that he did well and was nearly in the top four, but not quite. Jimmy Kent then smarms that he bets they say that to everyone, which yeah. they well might. There were only like six of them there. <laughs> right. But uh... – Anyway, Carson says that that's enough out of Jimmy Kent and tells Alfred that this doesn't mean he won't succeed later, and Mrs. Hughes agrees. Uh, the sad trombone you hear is Molesley walking in, asking for a word with Carson. Uh, just get through this, just say what happens, and we'll move on.
0: Uh, yeah, so as we all have guessed, Molesley has now decided to take the job, and Carson just... Reams him, reams him, and it just like what did Mosley do to Carson? Because Carson just seems to despise him. Yeah, in this episode, that is just all out of character. So he treats Mosley like a dog, and Mosley slinks off.
1: Well, you know, it's not Mosley's fault that Dan Stevens left. Right,
0: <laughs> we're all angry. Uh, yeah, but be angry at Dan Stevens. Here, here. Anyway. Uh, Mostly leaves and Alfred comes out and Carson tells him to cheer up that he was near miss Alfred reckons that Jimmy Kent's right that they say that to everyone uh, but what Carson reckons is that Alfred is a hard worker and he deserves to succeed and if he just sticks with it he will eventually I
1: mean god knows he's not going to get anywhere on his looks yeah
0: why did we spend all this time on this I don't know babe I thought it was worth it because at the end we'd be rid of Alfred
1: but no no again this is Julian fellows like I'm going to introduce something that would be really interesting and move the story forward. But then at the last second, <laughs> right. we're going to not do that. Yeah. Like, I understand that life is disappointing. But, like, when the plots are so poorly executed,
0: right. it's anyway. wretched.
1: In the Dowager counter's drawing room, she tells Isabel and Dr. Clarkson, who is there. Right. Because apparently no one ever gets sick anymore. Yeah.
0: That's... They've solved like, medicine. did they all find
1: that spring from Tuck Everlasting? <laughs> where, like, right. everybody's fine.
0: And Dr. Clarkson's like, well, I guess there's nothing to do but help the peg for the rest <laughs> of my life.
1: <laughs> so she is talking to them and saying that she's not saying Peglet took it, but she doesn't know who else could have. Isabel says that the Dowager Countess is accusing him. Dowager Countess says that she only knows that Peglet was in the room. And Clarkson asks if she was there, if he was there legitimately. And the Dowager Countess points out, I think correctly, that yeah. she is not a witness for the prosecution. And Isabel says, aren't you? apparently what's happened is that a valuable paper knife uh, has gone missing given to the late Lord Grantham by the King of Sweden which Isabel says makes all the difference just like what? very bitchily but here's no, what the- I don't understand you have brought this peglet right into her sphere yeah and she is not being unreasonable yeah
0: the fact that it was given to the late Lord Grantham by the King of Sweden does make it and the Dowager Countess is not being a bitch about this yeah she's not they're
1: both just being super defensive yeah like, do you have a paper knife from the fucking king of Sweden? Wouldn't you be bummed out if yeah. it was gone suddenly?
0: Yeah. Like, Isabel's being super bitchy about yeah. it. Yeah. Clarkson is trying to be more of a mediator. Anyway. Yeah.
1: The Dowager Countess says that, yeah, that makes the loss greater. And Dr. Clarkson agrees but says there's no real proof against Peglet. And the Dowager Countess says that she won't sack him but she won't allow him in the house and we'll speak to Maley about it. And Isabel says that will do him a lot of harm. And then the Dowager Countess asks if she should just invite the local criminals to drop in <laughs> and <laughs> rob her blind.
0: isabel's like, "I do."
1: Clarkson just suggests that she be told when a gardener's coming inside so that she or a servant can be keeping watch while they investigate the case of the Swedish knife. (laughs) Isabel asks, or do you already scent blood? And then the Dowager Countess says, as a matter of interest, do you ever doubt? Yeah. And apparently, uh, Isabel doesn't doubt Peglet, but the Dowager Countess says that's not what she asked. Also, in this scene, Isabel's annoying the shit out of me. Yes. But she looks fantastic.
0: She does. That is true. In an
1: otherwise pretty lackluster fashion episode yeah she just she looks very jaunty
0: yeah and uh, yeah but definitely in this round of the isabel dowager debates like dowager in a unanimous decision like no
1: i mean like there's not even anything to get mad about at this point right we haven't even had the hilarious misunderstanding
0: portion. (laughs) right god so next among various chickens and piles of hay and whatnot uh farm things (laughs) right Drew is walking with Marion Branson. The fact, the way they're walking through the farm during this just felt like very law and order to me.
1: <laughs> um, I'm a Yorkshireman, see? <laughs> I was just walking past this pig and I saw this dead prostitute. <laughs> I don't know nothing.
0: They say she was named Ethel. <laughs> but yes, he he's telling them that he's grateful and all the more determined to. Prove that he is worthy of Mary's faith. Uh, But Mary says that it was Lord Grantham's uh, decision that he's the one Drew should thank. Drew says that he will and that he will also get him the rest of the payment before he's missed it. Mary's like, What payment? And Drew says, Oh, I thought you'd know all about it. And Mary's like, Oh, of course, I was just being absent minded. And Branson's like, so how much was it? I've forgotten. <laughs> and Drew says, Oh, just the last fifty pounds. And Mary says, Okay, thank you. I'm I'm sure we have many fruitful years ahead. And they walk off. And so Branson asks if Mary is going to challenge Lord Grantham over this issue. And she says that if he believes in Drew enough to do this, then that tells her something. That tells her that they are in partnership with a very decent man.
1: Uh Lord Grantham? I guess so. I th- you're drawing the wrong conclusion because she says that his deception of them makes him decent and i'm like no that makes him deceptive
0: yeah but you know mary's always looks on the bright side where lord grant yeah that's definitely true
1: anna comes into mrs hughes's parlor and says you know i know you told mr bates what happened and mrs hughes is afraid that bates has guessed who it is but she swore on her mother's grave that it wasn't him so that should be fine right uh, Anna says that he seems to have accepted her word, and she's going to move back into the cottage. Missus Hughes is very happy, and she weirdly says that if she's damned for all eternity, it was for a good cause. Again, thank God's fine with this.
0: Right? I mean, you know, people—you know—you're supposed to take swearing on things very seriously, I but guess. I think if you swear on your mother's grave, then it's just your mother that'll be mad. Yeah.
1: And that's, you know, you can work that out in the afterlife. <laughs> right. Anna says that Bates has shown a great generosity of spirit, so they're going to try and put the whole thing behind them. And Hughes hates that Green is getting away with it, but she supposes it's for the best. Right.
0: In a downstairs hall, Daisy is grinning like an idiot, and Patmore asks why, and she says, oh. Because I'm an idiot. Right. Because she's excited that Alfred is staying. <laughs> Um, which uh, I try and remind myself that we've all had crushes on people that we later don't understand why we had crushes. Totally, on them, but so. also fucking, ugh. Uh, yeah. Uh, elsewhere, Anna passes Bates and they smile at each other, which is nice to see. And uh, Hughes comes by and says she's happy to see Bates that Anna told her that they had you know, reconciled. And she's so happy that it's all over and done with. Bates suddenly... Like, heel turns on this whole thing and says that nothing is over and done with. Uh, very heisen Heisen Batesy. Yeah, he's he's breaking bad here. Yeah. Like, it's disturbing. Uh, he says that he only told Anna that it was over to, so as not to worry her. Uh, but Hughes says that she doesn't know the man's name, even if Bates were to threaten her with a knife. A paper knife from the King of Sweden.
1: <laughs> uh, the look on Bates' face... This
0: no, it's
1: he's. I mean, look, and Bates has always been kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, remember he used to be this alcoholic who yeah. was beating his wife and all the stuff.
0: And yeah, like he's he's definitely yeah. There's there's character grounded more of a
1: Saint Francis than a Jesus, really.
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's uh, it's disturbing. He says he's not going to press Hughes, but nothing is over and nothing is done with. Uh, and we end on that ominous note. So yeah yeah
1: i mean i'm interested yeah i'm interested
0: i, I don't know i maybe
1: he'll kill mosley by mistake
0: <laughs> <laughs> could be no i uh i found i don't know i found this episode odd just odd mm-hmm. and, like well again i think part of it was the whole tone was set by the m- mysterious presence of peg well, like that, that that sort of the, just threw that me that off from of the, the explanation beginning there
1: and then the sudden recovery of character and plot details that right. have been heretofore completely ignored this season. Right, right. Um
0: But uh yeah. You know, we well are.
1: you know, we're we're set up for some interesting things. We'll see
0: what happens. <laughs> right. We may but, not get them. Yeah. But there's the chance.
1: Which brings us to the Abbey Awards. Yes. Leading off with Best Evasion, that goes
0: to The Dowager's paper knife.
1: Uh yeah, that it's, will uh y- that y- was not on screen at any point in the entire series—that's right—we didn't even know that the late Lord Grantham knew the King of Sweden. It's
0: been evading us for years, indeed. Yeah. So well done, well done. Uh, next up, we have the worst decision award.
1: That goes to Mister Bates right. for suddenly deciding to be murderously violent. <laughs> right. uh, we are
0: going think crazy.
1: As as interesting a plot line as this may prove to be, <laughs> right. We do not think this is ultimately going to bring anyone at down to anything but grief. Right,
0: exactly, and and yeah, I. I hope people are under I mean and by people I really mean more Julian fellows that I I I hope and I I mean I generally think it's true that he understands the problematic nature of Bates mm-hmm. and why he's like that that he's wrong mm-hmm. that he was wrong really wrong to be so like Mean towards Anna's relationship with Green, uh-huh. even though it was retroactively justified. Yeah, um, and wrong to be such a vengeful person, which is why Anna couldn't talk to him about it. Exactly, and wrong now.
1: Yeah, so anyway. we'll see. Yeah. Next up, best overbite,
0: and we're going to give that one to Arsène Avignon,
1: aka the haughty chef yes. at Alfred's test. <laughs> right. But we really liked his overbite because he was shaming Alfred with it. <laughs>
0: That's right. <gasps> Uh, next up we have the Gibson Girl Award.
1: Uh, as will be obvious to anyone having listened to this podcast That's today, right. <laughs> we're giving it to Isabel because really everybody else was so lackluster. Yep, yeah, and much. she did the, so much better. She
0: really did. There was like one dress McGee wore that I liked. Mm-hmm.
1: Rose had on a cute like little pink thing uh during one of the meal scenes, but then Mary was wearing this weird dress with bizarre circles around the neckline. Yeah. And Edith was wearing her fabulous coat, but like she's worn it before. Yeah.
0: Well and Edith and Rose were both barely in the episode.
1: That's also true. So it was it was not a heavy fashion episode. Yeah. Uh but don't worry, we're still going to be awarding (laughs) (laughs) the Fashion Backwards Award for backwards fashion, aka the Mm Backy to
0: To all of the chef testants. Oh,
1: my God.
0: (laughs) They looked horrible. Just,
1: wow. There's a lot of people who shouldn't wear white. (laughs) But I think Britons are (laughs) chief among them. (laughs) Britons and albinos. (laughs) Just don't do it. Don't Mm -hmm. go there.
0: Uh, that brings us to a very exciting award this week, the Cutest Baby Award. Well,
1: it was a real contest. It was. We debated this for about 15 minutes. <laughs> we did. We're not making that up.
0: Right. Because it basically came down to the last moments in that scene mm-hmm. in which Sibby says, uh-oh. And, and George, George reacts. Yeah. Like, looks down he to see what's going on. can't believe
1: what's happened. Yes. I, I actually advocated strongly for George, but yeah. upon, I think we had to watch this scene about three extra
0: times. <laughs> right.
1: But we're going with Sibby.
0: We are. We're going with Sibby. She had the
1: line saying, "Uh uh-oh, in a British accent. Adorably British accent. And she's got that little upturned nose. It's very sweet. So, Sibby, congratulations. Uh, In this week's contest of pitting baby against baby, (laughs) you have emerged victorious.
0: That's right. Which brings us to everybody's favorite award, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths.
1: It's a solid five this week. That's right. Uh, Her Queen of the Rebels line. And really... We would have given it to her if the only thing she did in this episode was laugh at her own joke. (laughs) That was when she won the five. That was fantastic.
0: She did. She got an Lord Byron reference. She That line about... as a matter of curiosity, do you ever doubt? Mm-hmm. I thought was just a fantastic yeah. line.
1: Uh, yeah, it's phenomenal. So really a, a banner week for our girl Mag. That's so right. So we're, we're hopeful she'll keep it up mm-hmm. uh, as various things continue to happen <laughs> right. at Downton Abbey. Whatever
0: they may be. Yeah,
1: whatever lies in store for the peglet. <laughs> uh, well, that's the end of this recap. Maybe not such a great episode, but I enjoyed uh, hashing it out.
0: As did I. We hope you all did as well.
1: And until next time... Up yours downstairs, luncheon out.